Hello, Nazir. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? Yeah, absolutely fantastic. My parents are ecstatic that you are on this evening. <laughs> you come from uh, you come from Lancashire, don't you? I think. Well, in the beginning, it was Lancashire witness, and then it became Cheshire. Cheshire tried oh, to get right, to Merseyside. Okay. Those ones, but All Merseyside right. refused. <laughs> <laughs> Whereabouts are you from yourself? I live in uh, I live in Manchester, so uh, okay. Uh, I'm not far from Manchester Airport, a couple of miles away from Manchester Airport. Not that I've seen any activity at Manchester Airport for years, or for months anyway. But uh, as a kid, uh, if I went to Manchester, they would call me a scouser, and if I went to Liverpool, they would call me a wallyback. There you go. You're <laughs> yeah, you're stuck in the middle, aren't you? Something like exactly. That. So good what, to see you. Good to see you as well. Just to introduce you to the audience, then, do you just want to say what got you on this mission and a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I spent three decades or thereabouts, <clears throat> well, a quarter of a century in prosecuting, and half that time I was um, chief prosecutor, and uh, in London and then the northwest of England, and I led on various national um, initiatives and, and programs. Uh, I left prosecuting five years ago now, six years ago now, and I moved into a number of other roles. I was chief exec of the country's police and crime commissioners. So I stayed in justice type roles. And then I, then I realized actually I didn't want to work for anybody anymore. And uh, so I do international development work. I do, um, I've written my book. I uh, do charitable work. I'm a patron of nine charities. And, but I'm still engaged in, in the kinds of issues that I've spent my life on, which is about dealing with the, the types of things that maybe the authorities don't handle very well. And your book is called The Outsider Who Transformed the Justice System. It's called The Prosecutor. Oh, The it's Prosecutor. It's more simpler than that. You're just reading the tagline. <laughs> right. Okay, sorry. I'm going to have the link for that in the description box and all of your social links as well. So people watching this can yeah. reach out to you and find where they can get that book very easily. It's very kind. No, when no, you, it's, uh, it's, when you, it's, it was a really cathartic experience going through trying to reflect on the things that matter to you and the things that matter to other people. And, uh, and I've enjoyed the reaction. And, you know, only yesterday, um, the, the film rights were purchased. So right. at some point in a year and a half or so, you'll see somebody playing me again. Fantastic. Not you want to. Gradual Every... Marks is not available, I'm afraid. Um... <laughs> Every author lives in the pipe dream world thinking the book is going to yeah, be Yeah, totally, Natalie. made it. All right, so when you were starting out on your mission then, would you say you were idealistic and things changed when you got on the front line? No, I don't think so. Uh, I grew up in um, I grew up in Birmingham in the Midlands and uh, you know, I spent the 60s and 70s were rough. Uh, I didn't have neighbors, I had witnesses. There was so much crime around and uh, <laughs> and I was um, beaten black and blue on a regular basis by or spat at by by skinheads on the street. No, no, yeah, uh, it was uh, very overt, wasn't it? And so I, I didn't, I didn't think I was idealistic at all. In fact, far from it. I remember being beaten up by three guys and going home. My father was tending to my wounds, and and I said to him, "I want to do something about. It. I want justice." And he goes, "There's no justice," you know. So far from being idealistic, I was very much a realist. Uh, and I think it was only when I got into the role that I had as a prosecutor, and particularly when I was um, chief and I was in a position of sort of being able to influence government policy or protocols and you know, that kind of stuff, I realized actually now I can do something about why it is that people feel that there is no justice. So um, I became more of an idealist 
later in life than I did uh, at the beginning, which is strange, isn't it? You had a baptism of fire. So yeah. our mission statement is end the war on drugs, take all those resources, go after the predators, people who are harming other people, instead of the mass incarceration of the lowest hanging fruit, lower level drug users, people with addiction issues. Don't disagree. I've said it. You know, we, we spend an inordinate amount of time in criminalising um, uh, Class C and, and Class B drugs. Class A is a different kettle of fish. You know, when you're talking about heroin and cocaine and crack and stuff like that, that that's uh, organised crime business. And But when you're dealing with um, the kinds of drugs now that are illegal in some parts of America, for example, um, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, is it the right priority? Uh, and you, when you're criminalizing class B and class C drugs, uh, what you're actually doing is you're criminalizing a whole generation of people. Uh, and um, uh, we could be better spending that time tackling the crimes that really matter to the public um, rather than something relatively easy. It's actually very easy to prosecute a, a possession of cannabis, you know? Uh, um, um, and, um, and sometimes the authorities do the easy stuff because it looks good on the in terms of data, you know, we prosecuted 50,000 of these cases last year, you know, um, when in fact, you know, they weren't nothing. There was not, we could have spent all that time prosecuting some decent, serious, organized criminals. So I just interviewed a woman called Maya, who was bred by her father so that he could molest her. He kept the diary of the molestations, rated them, and put down what drugs he used on those molestations. And at the sentencing hearing, the judge said, I want to give you a life sentence. You're one of the most evil people I've ever encountered. The letter to the judge from the defendant just mocked the system. And Maya was there watching this go down. He wanted to adjourn it to figure out if he could give him any more time, but he knew it would cause more suffering to her. Now, he, the guy ended up with the 10 years. He had to serve 50%. He'd done two on remand. He was out after three. How can we use this woman's story, because she is a brilliant speaker, to get through to these politicians that this needs to be changed? Yeah. Um, in her case, I imagine they would have had an impact statement from her, which we didn't have until recently. So the judge and the court should be aware of the impact on her. It's not just the, you know, the crime itself is terrible enough, but the trauma and the lifelong trauma that somebody suffers in those circumstances should also be uh, something to be taken account of. Strange as it may sound, Sean, just thinking about sentencing is a bit of a red herring because if they're not caught in the first place, if they're not charged in the first place, if they're not convicted in the first place, there's no point even thinking about sentencing. And that's what's happening, unfortunately, because you've got fewer police officers and prosecutors, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of criminals are just getting away with it now. And if we just focus on sentencing, it's a bit of a little, you know, in the film world, it's called a MacGuffin, isn't it? Where, where people think about something all the time, but actually it's not the real issue. The real issue is that there's resources in the whole system are really um, not there and the system itself is broken. So um, I'm with her. I think you know, the more we hear her voice and voices like that, uh, the more likely it is that people will listen, but it needs to be amplified. You know, one of the things I did as a, in my role, which went beyond, I suppose, what my role was about, was amplifying those voices. I'm not an expert in anything, Sean. Uh, the victim survivors that I, I dealt with, or, or, who trusted me, they told me what their experiences were. And I went away, I ran off to the Home Office or government or judges and said, oh, you need to do things differently now. And uh, 
So I was just just the enabler, really. Uh, and the more more people like Maya need to be heard at the level of people who can bring the change. Who would we need to contact then to get her in front of those people? Uh, the, I would start with Yvette Cooper, Cooper who's the um, uh, chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, because uh, what the Home Affairs Select Committee does is it, it's, it's not bound by party politics. She happens to be Labour, but it's a mixture of all politi politicians. And they look at themes. They don't just look at uh, a section 47 or whatever it is. You know? They look at the themes. And so I think writing to Yvette Cooper and asking her and her committee to explore the issue is a great start. If you, wrote, if you write to the Home Office, you know, you'll still be writing a few years down the line. They're much, much slower. Uh, and very often they only re respond when they've been pressurised by other parliamentarians. So that was what I would suggest. Thank you for that. I'll pass that on to her. So you are the only person so far to have prosecuted Ghislaine Maxwell. How did that come about? And the only person ever to have prosecuted in front of the Queen. Um, okay, not the two weren't related. Uh, but Ghislaine Maxwell, I mean, I didn't really appreciate it. You know, you deal with tens of thousands of cases in my career and I hadn't remembered it, but somebody's doing a documentary on uh, Ghislaine Maxwell in preparation for um, uh, the trial this summer. And they said, Nazir, do you remember back in 1996 <laughs> when you prosecuted Ghislaine Maxwell? I said, not really. Uh, and they sent me a, a cutting from some newspaper. Ah, now I remember. Well, she was, um, and it's quite relevant, actually, because one of the charges she faces in America relates to the period 1994 to 1997, when she was, with, when she was with Epstein, allegedly involved in criminal activity. And uh, she was in London, didn't have anywhere to stay, obviously at a party somewhere, got really, really drunk and was driving uh, and was stopped by police. And uh, the police couldn't bail her anywhere because she had no address, not living in, in London. Um, so she took them to a friend's house uh, where she made them tea, uh, which is what you do for every police officer that's just arrested you. Um, and, uh, and then was charged and she appeared before me and, and the court, uh, pleaded guilty, uh, told everybody she was an internet professional, which in 1996, there weren't many internet professionals around. Uh, and I think I, I, that's, why, that's why it stuck with me, actually, the idea of somebody being an internet professional. Uh, she, was, she, she accepted her guilt. She'd flown back specially for the court hearing, so she clearly had money even if she didn't, um, didn't have it in front of her uh, or said she didn't have it. Uh, she ended up paying the fine and she was banned from driving for 12 months, which wasn't a big problem for her because you're only banned from driving in the UK and she never lived in the UK. So uh, she was able to go back to Jeffrey Epstein. Um, so, you know, strange as it may sound, you know, the way she behaved, uh, you know, I have to watch my words here, uh, you know, by being so nice and by being um, manipulative, manipulative of the police officers, it's a bit, a bit like grooming going on here. You know, she was being really, really nice to the police officers to the point where they had never seen anybody so nice to them. And of course, the allegations in the United States relate to her being excessively nice to young, allegedly, uh, keep saying allegedly, excessively nice to uh, young uh, girls uh, to the point where um, the prosecutors allege uh, that, that she had groomed them to the point where then Epstein was able to take advantage of them. So, um, you know, it seems to be in her nature to be excessively nice were you aware that her property in the uk was under surveillance uh, they've suspected it was a brothel back then um 
I'd heard. I must admit, I wasn't aware back then. I became aware much later. Um, but I, I was aware that uh, she was a, a person of interest. But to whom? I can't tell you. And I wouldn't. I mean, I don't know. No, I can't tell you. I just don't know. <laughs> so uh, it's not a secret. Um, but, you know, she was um, living on the edge, to put it bluntly. And uh, I spent most of her time in the United States of America, certainly at that time. How do you think her current predicament is going to play out? Well, the Americans have a very different legal system. And one thing that they do, I wish we could do more of, and that's plea negotiations. There are very few contested matters. Strange it may sound, because we're all watching, well, not all of us, but we'll, the trial of uh, Derek Chauvin for the uh, alleged murder of, of George Floyd is happening right now, and people can watch that online. And you, you get this assumption, or you, you make an assumption that somehow that's, that, that, that happens all the time. The Americans don't have many trials. They carve them out beforehand. People plead guilty. The prosecutor can say to a defendant, if you plead guilty to counts one, two, and three, I'll drop four, five, and six. Or if you give evidence against X, Y, and Z, we'll drop. So my sense is even though a trial date's been set for July, um, it may not end up being a contested trial. There may well be some kind of um, negotiation and, and agreement as to the way forward. Um, but if it doesn't, you know, she's still saying that she's not guilty of anything. It will be uh, a trial that will obviously have, will get a lot of attention. Uh, because there are so many other figures on the periphery, uh, very high-profile public figures on the periphery whose names will undoubtedly be mentioned, uh, and people will remain a bit concerned that they are not facing any justice themselves. So in the last week, the media have announced that she won't be calling Prince Andrew as a witness. What do you think the motive for that is? Uh, Well, I suppose, I mean, she will argue uh, and she will say, he saw nothing, he wasn't involved, what's the point, you know? Um, others might suggest that Prince Andrew's made it very clear he doesn't want to go to America. Um, uh, and uh, he would have to give his evidence by video link, potentially, uh, from the UK. Um, who knows? Who, I mean, who knows what's, what's playing in, uh, in her mind or in her advocate's mind, a lawyer's minds. Um, there, there's nothing potentially to stop the prosecutors from if they've got evidence that might suggest that uh, His Royal Highness can somehow bolster their case against Ghislaine Maxwell, then you know they may want to take a statement from him or may ask him to give evidence uh, against her. But who knows? Do you think a plea bargain is more likely than a trial? Yeah, yeah I still think so, because that's the American experience. Um, the evidence seems quite overwhelming from uh, allegedly. I keep using the words allegedly, because uh, you know, they've added a fourth alleged victim now. Uh, and, you know, they've all materially given similar accounts of what's supposed to have happened. Um, you add, um, uh, there's a perjury allegation as well about what she get, told the court back in 2016. So I think that, you know, there was um, quite a compelling case against her. And, you know, I suspect her lawyers are, are, are going to, um, you know, have a very earnest conversation with the prosecution about uh, what would be acceptable to them um, to avoid a trial taking place for, for all the reasons that uh, I suspect she wouldn't want a trial to take place, but also because it would reduce, reduce potentially any sentence she might receive. So the conspiracy she was allegedly in involves numerous people and the public are wondering 
if indictments will come down on them. There's been speculation that some of the girls who were procured, who later went on to procure, may be indicted. What are the legal complexities of those cases? If you're a minor and you get groomed into this and end up as an adult in your low 20s or whatever it is, mm. getting other girls into the web, what, what are the legal complexities of well, that? We've, we've, we have similar situations. In fact, I dealt with a similar situation in the UK where in one of the most famous cases I dealt with, the Rochdale Grooming Gang case, um, one of the young women um, was also engaged in encouraging other women to become abused. Um, so it's not, it's not unusual for, it's almost like a cycle of abuse. Now you become, you're abused and then you become engaged or involved with the abusers in encouraging other women and girls to come uh, into the um, nest or web, as, as you called it. Um, we, I think that that person would be treated very differently to the original perpetrator, because you would have to take account of their circumstances. Uh, if they were a victim first uh, and then became involved in um, encouraging or facilitating um, that kind of thing, then I think that would have a that would have an impact on the sentence or potential sentence. Uh, it would not be as severe as uh, anything that the original facilitator would get. So uh, we do have a, like a hierarchy of crime and criminals, uh, and I think you cannot divorce from that person's uh, culpability their original abuse. So many of the researchers that we've interviewed on this channel have speculated that Ghislaine and Epstein were running a honey trap operation with links to intelligence agencies. If that were the case, and Maxwell had a treasure trove of videos or photos of extremely powerful people in compromising positions, would the intelligence agencies possibly step in and say it's in the interest of national security that certain things can't be revealed at trial, or they may say, "Look, cut her a deal, a plea bargain. We don't want you know all this coming out at trial." Could there be some kind of intervention like that from? Yeah, higher, you, higher I mean, you, there are there are numerous parties engaged. You have the you, you have the attorneys, the prosecutors themselves. You have the U.S. attorneys. Uh, you have the Department of Justice engaged. Uh, if what you say is true. I don't know if it's not. Uh, you might have the intelligence services engaged. You've certainly got um, the British government potentially engaged, given um, um, involvement of others or potential involvement of others. Uh, as I said a moment ago, I still think a trial is unlikely uh, because nobody wants to wash their laundry in, in public. And uh, if they can find a, a negotiated plea bargain uh, that prevents uh, much of this information being uh, rehearsed than they would. But also, remember, there are victims here and you don't want to re-traumatise them uh, in a trial, which is what happens. They have to be cross-examined, etc. So uh, there's a balance of the exercise that needs to happen, Sean. Uh, as I said, uh, if I'm not a betting man, but my, my money would be on some kind of uh, plea bargain rather than a trial. And with the new indictments that have come down, I mean, sorry, the new charges that have been added... What could possibly be her maximum sentence now? Do you know? Again, this is, I mean, the United States has a very, very, uh, because it's federal law and it's also New York law. Um, 
you know, you could be looking at 25 to life, which is, uh, you know, quite a significant sentence. Uh, but does, uh, does she want that hanging over her? Uh, which is why uh, what I said a moment ago about plea bargaining. Um, you know, it, you, what the prosecutors in the United States can do, which prosecutors in the UK can't do, is uh, agree a sentence. So they could turn around and say 10 to 20 or 5 to 10, whatever it may be. Um, and the judge would rather stamp that. So, um, you know, it could be a very, very long sentence where she ends up spending the bulk of, the, if she's convicted, the bulk of the rest of her life in prison, or it could be uh, just a, a few years. So um, that will depend upon what the final outcome is. So I think she's had three bail bond hearings now, all of which were denied. By the time of the third one, it was obvious that the judge was going to deny it. Do you think that her legal team are milking her by doing unnecessary legal work? No, I, I mean, I think only today, if I recall, three million pages of disclosure has been made by the prosecution. Now, that, sound, that sounds like a lot, but that could be two and a half million call records, you know, phone bills, uh, with, uh, which are totally irrelevant to the prosecution or defence for that matter. Uh, so don't get excited about when you see that kind of number. But uh, the defence's job is to go through that material and see if there's anything that might undermine the prosecution, might assist their defence. Uh, and, you know, they, well, they'll make these applications um, for bail on her instructions. She will say to them, you know, can you make now that they've now we know the full extent of the prosecution case, and we know what material they've got. Uh, can you make another application? And um, you know, they've tried three. I can't imagine they'll succeed because she's a, as far as the prosecution is concerned, judges concerned, she's a flight risk. You know, she, she could be anywhere in the world tomorrow. Uh, and uh, additionally, um, she has access to funds. So I can't imagine. And the, the fact the trial has been set for July. If, if and when it does happen, uh, means it's only another two months or thereabouts. Just to bring the people watching this up to speed, Nazia was the only person to successfully so far prosecute Ghislaine Maxwell quite a while back. He's got a book out, which is called The Prosecutor. And it's in the, the Prosecutor. <laughs> and in the final uh, few minutes, Nazia, what is the structure of that book then? Are you, are you going over your complete career? Yeah, I mean, initially, uh, initially it was, uh, here's the great cases I dealt with, but actually I found that really boring. I mean, I've, I've lived those cases. What it is now is uh, it's a memoir about the, the growing up, uh, why I became a prosecutor, um, my learning during London, in London in the 90s, also a sort of a mirror on what London was like in the 90s. Uh, and then more, more recently, some of the high profile cases, but also I think the way the landscape changed. So, you know, some of my cases did change the criminal justice landscape um, and people need to know and understand that. But I think you mentioned the tagline earlier on one man's pursuit of justice for the voiceless. I had to remind myself what it was. Um, that, that, I think at the end of the day, I'm very immensely privileged that victims, survivors shared their stories with me and I was able in some way to deliver justice for them. So it's their stories too, uh, or more so actually than mine. Uh, uh, people need to hear them because they probably spent most of their lives not being heard. What cases are you proudest of and which ones were you most disappointed um, in? Yeah, I, well, you know, there are, oh, there are lots of high-profile cases, but there's a, I think the case I'm most proud of 
was the, probably the most difficult case I ever dealt with. And that was a, a woman that was deaf, dumb, couldn't speak English, locked in a cellar in, in Manchester, oh. abused for 10 years. There are oh. Uh, and um, uh, we had to, we taught her sign language. Uh, we put all sorts of things in place to be able to bring that prosecution. We convicted the family of and people of abusing her, and then we took all their property and gave her the money, uh, confiscated. And so she's now been able to rebuild her life, uh, despite spending the years ten to nineteen, literally living in a cellar. So I think that one, because people won't know that. And modern slavery is very real. Uh, people seem to think it's, um, you know, maybe it happens in, I don't know, less developed countries or something. This was, you know, England. Uh, and I can assure you there are stories in the United States, or, you know, you name it. Um, where you have power, people with power and people without power, uh, you'll find that uh, the people without power are extremely vulnerable. And so I, I feel very proud about that case, the fact that we were able to deliver justice for somebody who really was the most vulnerable person I've ever, ever come across in my life. Good grief, that is astounding. How many people were responsible for keeping her in the cellar? Uh, a whole family. Whole family. Six, six, a father, um, uh, not her father, uh, a man, a, a woman, two younger children, were still in their 30s. They did more than put her in a cellar. They used her for, to claim benefits. They used her to, they forced her to commit labor, uh, you know, work for them. Uh, and uh, the eldest member of the family, eldest member of that family, also sexually abused her. So uh, it was quite an extraordinary life that she had. But the great news, Sean, and this is why I remain optimistic about how important justice is, is that she's now um, educating herself, has a roof over her head, has a life ahead of her, and uh, enormous support networks. And that really is what you can do. And what frustrates you the most about the justice system? Um, I think the, the reluctance to modernise. You know, you and I are talking to each other online. Uh, uh, the trial of Derek Chauvin is, you can watch that online. You know, lawyers don't like a camera in a courtroom. Uh, the public don't have the ability to go and see what happens in their name. I think with proper protection for vulnerable witnesses, you should be able to stream every court case all the time. This is being done in your name, using your money. Uh, and I think that will give people a greater understanding of what justice means. It will mean that you can root out poor performance uh, and you can bring the, bring the change. I think that would be the most seismic change that we could bring. You know, can you think of any other profession that hasn't got a camera? You know, you watch all those surgery, surgery programs and you know, there's a camera in every other office, but we keep our courtrooms. By law, the 1925 Act, we keep our cameras out of our courtrooms uh, and that literally doesn't make sense and i think if you were if you were able to see what was going on in your name you would uh, be really angry uh, and you would bring the change your taxpayers money as well well huge thank you for coming on nazia i film in liverpool every couple of months would love to get you in the podcast if you've got a couple of hours to i'd love to be there yeah, that, that'd be fantastic. People watching this, the links are in the description box for Nazir, the links for his book. And also, uh, how, if people want to message you, are you on the socials? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Nazir Afsal. Uh, and uh, you can DM, DM me or message me that way. I also have a website, Nazir Afsal, no.tourspaces.co.uk. And people can message me that way. That's probably the best way to message me, actually. 
is private and I can respond. But you know, it's also really important to me to say this, Sean. I can't. I haven't got the capacity to deal with individual cases anymore. I get ten every week saying I'm in trouble. Can you help me? I don't have admin. I don't have a team of lawyers. It's just me, and I, I don't want to raise people's expectations. But if you think of a really big issue, I'm more than happy to help with those big issues. Huge thank you for coming on, and I look forward to doing some more with you in the future. You're welcome, Sean. All the best. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. We've got Andrew Wallace coming through now. And he is the CEO of Unseen, which is a UK charity, which has won multiple awards. And their mission is towards a world without slavery. Thank you very much for coming on, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Sean. Great to meet you. Are you in London or? No, I'm in Bristol. In Bristol, okay. Yeah, not everything needs to be in London. <laughs> this is true, especially during pandemonium times. Absolutely, there is life beyond London. What got you involved in this work? Do you want to tell the audience a bit about you? Introduce yourself, please. Yeah, sure. So I founded Unseen, gosh, nearly 13, 14 years ago, because um, I came across the issue. Um, so a colleague of mine had been in the Ukraine and had actually stopped someone being trafficked um, and ended up having to pay off the trafficker in order that she didn't get sold into slavery. So that story came back. And then uh, a friend of mine had spent their summers um, actually coincidentally also working in Ukraine, working in the social orphan problem and came back and told me this story that when kids get kicked out of the orphanage at 16, lots of them just end up in the clutches of traffickers. Literally traffickers knew when the, the turf out days were. Um, and it just kind of like, like you probably grew up thinking we ended slavery 200 plus years ago, Wilberforce, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then just sort of going, so how, how is this possible? And then transitioning from, okay, it's a problem in Ukraine to actually realizing it was a problem much closer to home. Cause I saw, um, I read a historical, historical article that was talking about the trafficking from Eastern Europe to the US and they were using the UK as a staging post. And uh, it named the regional airports that were being used to, to move people to avoid like the Heathrows and the Schipholes, et cetera. And Bristol airport where I live, I don't live in Bristol airport, but Bristol was named. And I just went, oh my gosh, this is this is joins the dots for me. And then I did what I thought was normal and discovered it wasn't normal. But I wrote to all the MPs in the Bristol area, all the members of the city council and the chief constable going, I've come across this issue. Is this a problem? What can I do to help? And to cut a very long story short, it ended up with a with a senior meeting with a senior police officer um, that was off the record uh, and behind closed doors, in which he kind of peeled off a layer of what was going on in Bristol and then peeled off a layer of what was going on in the UK. And I suddenly realized that this problem was much, much bigger than I really realized. And at the end, and I blame him, him it's his fault. He sort of challenged me, he said, look, any idiot can write a letter that creates a stink. You can retire happy if that's what you wanted to do, but what are you actually gonna do about this problem? And um, I said, the words sort of came out of my mouth and I, you know, sometimes you're like, you wanna grab them back. I said, so what do you need? And he was—he needed safe housing. He—he he was fed up because he was kicking in the doors. And at this time, it was main, mainly around sexual exploitation. Our understanding of what we now call modern slavery. He would kick the doors in. He had to arrest the victims to get them out of the situation. 
They would stick them in a B&B or a hotel overnight. They would disappear. He knew that they were going straight back to their traffickers. It meant he couldn't interview them to find out who the bad guys were. So he was frustrated as a police officer, but also frustrated because he knew victims weren't getting the help and support that they needed. So he said, I, I need safe housing. And so I said, I'll, I'll do that on one condition. You're my first trustee, because you know more than me at this point. And um, he, he said yes, and he still is a trustee of the charity all these years later. Um, and so we, we set about sort of trying to work out how do we take this sort of strange conversation into reality. And my friend that had worked in the orphanages, um, she was a teacher at the time, she came to me and said, Look, I'm, I'm done with teaching and they kicked my heels for three or four months. You know, is there anything, you know, got anything interesting to do? I said, do you fancy opening a safe house? I don't know what, what it means, what's involved, but this is what it is. So she agreed. Um, and so we started this process. I mean, literally it was, wasn't any more sophisticated than that other than outrage. There's a need, how do we meet it? But because this uh, senior police officer was so senior he could get he got me into the home office and to what was then the serious organized crime agency and it was just a mess and the former management consultant business person and me just went we could do better than this we have to do better than this and by this point i'd met some survivors of modern slavery and i think once you've met someone that has gone through the horrors of slavery it it changes you um i defy it not to change anybody doesn't necessarily mean you have to do what I've done, but you, you realize that actually you should never treat another human being like that. So we started the first safe house and, and one thing led to another. I ended up chairing a report for a think tank in London, um, which uh, the report came out in 2013. And eight weeks after we published the report, I was in the cabinet office when the Home Secretary said, based on this report, we're gonna do the Modern Slavery Act. And then I lost two years of my life in Westminster, Modern Slavery Act. And, and through that, we've grown the charity and we're now in the UK's Modern Slavery Helpline. We work with businesses, policing, the general public, governments around the world. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Wow, absolutely brilliant work. Now, you said that this is prevalent. And is it because it is so dark that the public doesn't want to look at it, that it just doesn't get addressed? Would you say that's an issue? I think it's part of the problem. We, as a society, we don't want to focus on, you know, the, the, the horrible things in life. But actually, if you try and sort of distill down what modern slavery is um, and, and why, why it exists, um, I think it's a number of things. I think first, for me, and this isn't a technical definition, but I think it helps people understand what we're dealing with. So for me, modern slavery is, is an illicit trade. It's a commodity trade. The commodity is a human being. That commodity, that human being is bought, sold and exploited for vast profits. Estimated at least, and this is nearly a 10 year old figure, at least $150 billion profit per annum. Um, with little chance if, if you're the exploiter of getting caught and little chance if you're the exploiter of, of getting free from that situation. So, it's, it's this economic crime, but it's also a supply and demand trade. So it is driven by actually societies, and, and let's make it personal, our demand for cheap goods and cheap services and cheap labor. And the supply is an endless supply of vulnerable people, you know, around the globe that exploiters prey on. 
So it's actually, it's all of our problem and, and we all contribute to the problem. And I think when it's, when, when you smack somebody into that, it's very easy to go, oh, hang on, I don't, I don't want to think about this. So part of it is making people aware of actually how, how prevalent it is and how, and we often talk about this hidden in plain sight bits. You started out saying that one of your motivations was the story of the girl who was about to be trafficked and the traffickers were paid and she was rescued. Just to bring this into you know, a clear description of what happens to these girls. So hypothetically speaking, then if that girl wasn't rescued, what would her life have been like? What would have happened to her next? So she was responding to an ad which was in the national press saying there's a job selling ice cream in Central Park in New York. So the, the trap was sprung. Um, she responded to it because there were no better options for her in, in life. And I think that's, that's sometimes, you know, the deception element of it. <clears throat> if, if that um, chance encounter hadn't happened, then she would have traveled legitimately to the United States, probably with a legitimate visa, all along thinking that this is my dream job, I'm gonna be able to support myself, new life, I'm probably gonna support my family. She would have arrived stateside. And usually what happened then is she would have been met by somebody and they would have said, oh, I'll look after your papers and everything else. And I just need to check a few things. That would have been the last that she saw of those papers and her passport, etc. And then she would have been driven somewhere. Now at its most horrific end, especially around sex trafficking, um, and back then we had a situation where they then the girls would be broken. And I don't think I need for the listeners to sort of go into the, the gory details of, of what that means. But as, in, in essence, trafficking for sexual exploitation is basically turning, uh, taking an individual and repeatedly raping them. <sighs> because that's what it is. So, you know, having sex with somebody against their will <sighs> is rape, that, that's, that's what it is. So, and, and then she would have been, you know, used in the sex trade um, in order to generate income. And she would have been set targets. And if she didn't meet those targets, she would have been repeatedly beaten. If she tried to leave, she would have been beaten. If she even thought about it, usually what they did was they would show them a photo of their family back home because they would know where she'd come from. They would date stamp it and say, you step out of line, they get it as well. So the, the controls are, often physical violence, threats of violence, or controls, you know, the psychological controls around that. But that's the same methodology used regardless of the type of exploitation that takes place, you know, whether it's forced labor or criminal exploitation or sexual exploitation um, or domestic servitude, it is fear and coercion and using that person to, to make lots of money. Do they use drugs to control the girls and does getting them on drugs also add to their own protection of the traffickers because if the girls escape and run to the cops and they've got needle marks in their arms etc then the cops attitude is this is just a junkie uh, sex worker you know we can't listen to this person we can't take them seriously and they end up just going back to the traffickers um it actually we see very, it's only slightly changing now, but at, going back 10 years, we actually saw very little use of drugs by, by the victims. Um, and why would you, if you're the exploiter, you're adding to your cost base. 
Um, and they, you don't need drugs to control someone. If, if you can control someone psychologically, you, you don't need drugs. What we are starting to see with the survivors that are coming through our services, and, and this is just a recent development, is the, they do use drugs, but it's as a means of coping. So if you think you, you, know, you are living in hell, dealing with the horrors that you have to deal with on an hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, never ending basis, it's, it's that method of, of blunting you know, what you're having to deal with. Um, often it's alcohol, so it's, it's not hard drugs as, as such, but it, we are starting to see in, increasingly the use of drugs around that. But it, it's more as a, um, a numbing mechanism rather than a control mechanism by, by the bad guys. So as these girls get older, are they then moved from sex work into something else? Do they survive the sex work? What happens to them? So can I do a bit of myth busting. Um, yeah. So, so this affects men and women, boys and girls. Um, it's no respecter of age, nationality, creed, uh, background, whatever. Um, it is just if, if you're vulnerable. And there are only three things that uh, stand between you and I becoming vulnerable. You know, one is having a roof over your head, two is having employment, and, and three is having a community to sort of, you know, give meaning and purpose to life. Take, remove those, and it's very easy and quick to become vulnerable. Um, lots of them do exit if it's sexual exploitation eventually. Um, and it is, it's as crude as saying that they exit when they are of no longer economic value to their exploiter. Um, so, and it's back to that definition I used of a commodity. You, you will exploit that commodity as much as possible to extract as much profit. And when it's not generating profit for you, you, you get rid of it. Um, yes, there are absolute horror stories at, at one end of the spectrum, um, you know, where it, you know, just, um, we're not past the 9, 9 p.m. watershed yet, so we'll, we'll just leave it as there are absolute horror stories uh, on that front. But actually, a lot of uh, what we see are victims that will flee. They will find that opportunity to flee. They will, uh, you know, in some circumstances, they'll, they'll speak to um, a, a punter and say, help get me out of this. And, and the punter will have the courage to call the police and everything else. Um, or they're actually just kicked out because they're, they're not economically viable. What we do see with victims of trafficking, um, and increasingly so, especially within the UK, is, is multiple types of exploitation. So you can exploit someone during the day, say, in forced labour situations, and then at night you can exploit them in sexual exploitation in that whole process. Um, there is, you know, at the far end of the spectrum, again, think of it as a commodity. You know, forced labour, sexual exploitation, and at the end of the process, you, you might as well exploit them for organ trafficking. Um, and so it's that ultimate, you know, you've, you've squeezed and, and wrung out every last sort of cent that you can from that commodity. That is the rare and that's the exception in that whole process. Um, others are found through police raids. Others have the courage to break those psychological chains and, and, and ask for help. Obviously, we run the UK's modern slavery helpline, so we have victims that call that and say, I'm in this situation, I need to, need to get out of this situation. Um, and we can liaise with policing and other agencies to, to make that happen if, if that's what the, the victim wants. I'm flabbergasted by this organ, uh, selling the organs then. Are we talking like a kidney here and the person's allowed to survive? Or are we talking full on fatal? 
Um, in the main, it's if you look at organ trafficking as a whole, it, a lot of it is around the kidney trade, and, and the, you know that the fact that globally, and we have a, an incredible shortage when it comes to sort of volunteer transplant uh, donors in, in that whole process. I mean, thankfully in the UK, it is it is incredibly sporadic, but in, in other parts of the world, we do see um, the level of organ trafficking, you know, slowly ticking up in, in that whole process. It's usually around. So the, let me give you one example. Um, the, the trafficker will go to, let's say, a remote village and say, we'll give you $5,000 for a kidney. You can live on one kidney. Um, they will arrange, will, will arrange everything, the hospital and everything else. You, know, you think about it, you've got to get them to a hospital. It's got to be a sterile environment. It's got to be done in that whole process. They will take them to the hospital, often fly them to a country where that hospital is, um, they are, everything will appear legit in that whole process, and it is um, because they're selling the kidney into into the the, the trade. Um, they have the operation. They come round, and they're then told, "Oh yeah, sorry, the, the cost for flying you there and looking after you in the hospitalisation was five thousand dollars." So five thousand minus five thousand is oh zero. Oh, we don't owe you anything, and, and you haven't got a kidney. And then they're sent back home. And remember, they're in a remote place. They won't have access to the medicines that they need to, to, uh, to live successfully with, with just one trade. What the, the, then, the question is, what happens to that kidney? It finds its way into the, the, the transplant trade. And, and what, was, what you see, if you look globally, is you know, here in the UK, if you need to go onto the transplant program, you'll be told, well, the waiting list is this. Um, but you, you don't need to spend too much time on the internet to go, well, if I want a replacement kidney, you know, I can buy one and I can fly overseas and have it done in a hospital and everything else. Um, but maybe you don't ask, where did that kidney come from? Who, what was the situation in which that donor gave that kidney in that whole process? Um, now, I'm not saying in every incidence it has come from that, but there is a likelihood that there is, you know, that there is a victim at the end of that trade. How easy is it to find the pers the um, entities that are trading kidneys? Do you have to go into the dark web, or is that just no, generally? No, you, you can you can fly to countries and pay to privately have a kidney transplant. The bit you don't see it, and and this is this is I think this is the shocker in all, all of this that that um, gap between the legitimate and the illegitimate in the, you know, where the exploitation of other individual is inserted into the legitimate economy is, is way for thin at times. And, and back to your point, you know, is this something that we just, you know, we're in denial about? In some ways, yeah, we are in denial about it because we don't stop and ask the question in terms of how is this possible? You know, whether it's through the food and the clothing um, or the consumer goods that we buy, you know, which are made manufactured, dug out of the ground, um, transported by people that are in situations of modern slavery. Which means we, we're all guilty. We're all, you know, we all intersect with this. Let me, I mean, let me ask you a question, John. Um, today, have you eaten food? Yes. Um, thankfully, you're wearing clothes um, and we're communicating via technology. So without trying really, because of the nature of global supply chains, your life 
and your consumption probably puts you in contact with 40 to 60 slaves. Really? Wow. My sister said when she was in Dubai, she saw all of the workers in these camps and realized that a lot of it was just based on slavery. Yeah, it is. And I mean, in the, in the Gulf states in particular, you have what's called the kafala system. So what that means is um, you're going to a legitimate job, but your visa means that you can only work for that employer. If you decide, if that doesn't work out, um, you, you can't change employer you're stuck with them so what happens is they get into these situations and the t's and c's that they were told don't exist or payments not fully paid or they're massively overworked or they're working in an unsafe environment and they're not free to leave that situation <clears throat> if they leave that situation they are an illegal entrant in that company and likely end up in jail <sighs> um, and that happens at you know on major construction sites but it also happens in what we call, say, domestic servitude. So, you know, you'll have people from, say, the Philippines or Nepal or Bangladesh in, in the Gulf states, you know, house um, maids, cooks, whatever, but they're on this tied visa and they're not free to leave that situation. And the exploitation happens. Um, and then they're trapped. Um, and even if they're paid, a, you know, a, a pittance, um, they can't speak up. Because they'll be told, well, the, the visa, if you, know, if you want to leave, then you're here illegally and we'll just report you to the police. We've got a couple of minutes left, Andrew. Uh, looking at the live chat, everybody's in huge support of your mission. Do you have, in closing, just what could you say to the viewers about your mission and how people can help you? And we're going to have all your links in the description box below this video. I, I think the first thing I would say is, is be, be aware. And, and increasingly be aware. Uh, secondly, you know, um, support organizations like Unseen. There are other, you know, two BBC fashion, there are other great organizations as well, but support the, the NGOs that are on the front line dealing with, it, with this issue. Um, if you've got a, a smartphone, download the Unseen app that has all the indicators of modern slavery on it. And you can also report if you suspect and see it, that's really helpful, especially as we come out of lockdown. Um, and, and then start asking questions of your lifestyle. Hey! I'm here. How are you? Yeah. All the better now you're here, man. Oh, good to see you again. You too. Got, How things going? We've got our little ball, <laughs> this beautiful thing. I mean, just, this might be too much flavor for some people. And the... <laughs> we'll deal with it. <laughs> How have you been since we last spoke? I've been good. I've been good. I mean, dealing in an insane world, um, you know, I'm as good as can be expected, but uh, happy to be here. How are you? How are you doing? How's how's the audience doing? That's the most important thing. Are they yeah, the audience? Up? Audience is still rising and people just want to know how they can get involved, support the mission. Yeah, I just interviewed this woman. I don't know if you heard with the previous guest um, who was born by her father just so he could molest her and the judge couldn't give him a life sentence he, he the guy was out within three more years after the sentencing so the, the other guest has told us a way we could perhaps get this woman in front of the politicians and try and get these laws changed because it's all upside down you've got people for low-level drug offenses doing decades 
Yeah. And the judge said this is one of the most evil people he had ever encountered. He deserved a life sentence, and he couldn't. He couldn't give it him. Could give because wow. of the laws. Yeah, we're the their hands are tied in a lot of things. I think they've been, you know, when you put powerful people up there and they they decide how the laws are managed, then um, it they set uh, set it up in a way that that allows them access, sets, gives them a key, and everybody else is locked out of the system. I described it as uh, moving into a house and rekeying the locks and we're all trying to put our key in there and it just it won't turn the lock and we're what happened what happened well the the criminals got in in the government and they rekeyed the house <laughs> they changed it they're in you can't get in anymore so it's it's in and it, it you know it works that way in finance too as well so so it's it's a frustrating system and and obviously you know it better than anybody um and, and if it were prioritized or if it was built based on fairness we would have a much different system. But I did see something recently. I was talking about this on a show last night about Baltimore um, de deciding to not prosecute or not even go after um, victimless crimes. And they so that was prostitution and it was some sort of drug use and, and some sorts of uh, drug possession, conspiracy to commit drug uh, distribution and all these really uh, kind of fringe laws that aren't that don't really mean anything you're not necessarily doing anything wrong you're just thinking about maybe committing a crime they got rid of all of that they stopped prosecuting it and what happened was that the crime went down 20 percent and the violent the the um the crime against property went down 35 percent. so they had massive uh you know it's the exact opposite so we have to sort of think about these things in a in a new way in a di like a different paradigm about how you treat uh criminals obviously here in the united states our prisons are filled with nonviolent offenders and, and 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 you know how that goes i mean some guy gets picked up for for something stupid on a friday they can't do anything to him till till monday maybe he gets in front of the judge and then by then he hasn't shown up to work for the last if he's working during the weekends has missed hasn't shown up to work he loses his job now he has no income so it's this cascading effect of uh, it doesn't just impact the person it impacts the, their job it impacts their family it impacts a lot of things so you know, I credit where credit is due to the the city, the 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 police. I think it was the police chief or somebody in Baltimore that had made that. It was a lady. She made the decision to stop stop doing that. And I thought, wow, you know what? That's good. We have to start looking at these things from a different perspective and trying some new ideas if we want to have uh, success here. They need to expand that to all over the world. Oh yeah. The, the previous guest, then he was talking about girls getting sex traffic from Ukraine and the organs trade. And I'm getting a lot of messages right now, people urging that I watch this documentary on YouTube. I've not watched it yet about organs trafficking is, is a quite a major part of it. Have you seen this documentary? No, no but, like but I lived Polish. in Las Vegas for nine years. And of course, you hear the joke, like, don't wake up in your bathtub, you know, packed in ice, your kidney missing. And we always like, oh, ha, ha, ha. well, but it's a real thing. Obviously, it's um, uh, guns, drugs, kids and organs. A lot of money. In that and of course who's running that the people the the last people that you would think if you if you're just kind of a normie and you know it's like the po politicians the military nato arms contractors like dynecorp and people like that i mean it's 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 so nefarious that you have to kind of 
allow your brain to go there, which is someplace you don't really want to, you want, you don't want to think about stuff like that. But I guess the flip side is pretending that it doesn't exist, doesn't make it go away any faster. So we sort of have to have that conversation early on and, and talk about the, the difficult things. Um, obviously you've done a lot of work. You and I've talked, talked about Epstein a lot, and I want to bring something to the table tonight about something about a guy who is in the Epstein circle and has been in the news lately. And I think a lot of people aren't really sure who he is or what his role is. And we're just going to explore a little bit about that. And then I'll hand you off to the to the next guest that can take it in a different direction. Is that Martin Nowak? That is, yeah. Yeah, he's he's been in the, the news lately here in the United States because he's a, a Harvard professor who was recently, um, you know, he was he was censored for censured for um, his role with Jeffrey Epstein. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this guy. And 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 he's not in the you know, well, we've talked about Epstein. He's got the child trafficking component. He's got the spy network component. And then he's got the scientists. And the scientists are kind of a weird one. Everyone is kind of wondering, well, what's he doing with all these scientists? And why is he giving so much money to them? I know he's got a, you know, everybody knows that Epstein has a has a hard on for, for Harvard. You know, he wants to be in Harvard. And so he's given money and, and had access to it. But this Martin Nowak guy, is he's an interesting character. And I think that um, after going through 2020, now revisiting who this guy is and what his what he's doing it's it's sort of an interesting um he's into some interesting things and i'm not necessarily saying that martin nowak is a bad guy on the epstein level i don't think that but i think he's involved in some areas of scientific research that are that's very that was very intriguing to Jeffrey Epstein and has to do more with his obsession or his interests in eugenics and population control. And that is on the surface seems kind of geeky and like, oh well, he's just into science. But there's a darker component that a lot of people have revealed over the last, especially the last year, with regard to uh depopulation and maybe the role of pandemics in depopulation. So I'll give a little background who this guy is. He's it, Martin Nowak is his name. He's in the news because he took money from Jeffrey Epstein while at Harvard to run the evolutionary dynamics um, uh, department. He created this. Now, I talked about on the show how he took $30 million from Epstein. He didn't actually, he took $9 million from Epstein, but Epstein um, said that he was going to give them 30 million over time. It just, it just got to the point where Epstein was so toxic that they couldn't do that. So, uh, Martin Nowak is a doctorate, uh, in biochemistry and mathematics. Um, he is originally from Vienna. He was, um, he has, uh, degrees from, uh, university of Vienna, Oxford, and he was a professor at Harvard. So he he's worked on um, on, a, on a, a variety of some interesting little topics I'll get into. One of them was was quasi-species model. That's kind of scientific-y, so bear with me here. It's a description of the process of the Darwinian evolution of certain self-replicating entities within the framework of physical chemistry. Now, remember, this guy is a, he's a doctorate in chemistry as well as mathematics. So he's looking at the mathematics behind chemistry. That's sort of the theme of his work. And um, what he's looking at, what he was looking at specifically was the self-replication of RNA and DNA. 
Now, RNA, we're starting to hear a lot more about with regard to the Moderna vaccines. And there's some overlap between what Martin Nowak was doing with his evolutionary dynamics and the vaccine industry as well, which is kind of alarming. So he's he's he wrote a book on the natural selection of cooperation and a desire for a good reputation. He's, he's, he's interested in a desire for a good reputation, yet he took a bunch of money from Jeffrey Epstein. This is, this is after he got out of prison, too. So it's not like he had no idea. And Epstein made 40 different trips to Harvard to visit this guy. In fact, Martin Nowak set him up an office. That's the office that uh, Epstein is, is known to go in and out of with his, with his key card was Martin Nowak was the guy who set that all up. <clears throat> so this guy back in 1998, he was uh, at the University of Oxford as a professor of mathematical biology. And uh, he then established a program in theoretical biology, which is kind of an obscure uh, avenue here. He's using mathematical models of living structure. So Fibonacci sequences to describe population growth among animals like rabbits. They did this study back in the 13th century about how rabbits, you know, multiply and things like that. So he's looking at a mathematical equation, like Fibonacci sequence, like if the way you look at a sunflower and you see how it's created this set, you know, through like sacred geometry, there's a kind of woo, woo, woo component to this too, when you get into the sacred geometry. So, so he's looking at these things and he's trying to understand how this works in nature the way you might see it in, in, in the plants or, or animals and how that uh, applies to human beings. So nothing necessarily nefarious here, but it's just that he's, he, it's just that Epstein took a, a liking to this to the point where he's, he said, I want to give this guy millions and millions of dollars. So in 2003, he became a professor of mathematics and biology at Harvard University, later became the director of the program for evolutionary dynamics. This is this is the program that he started with Epstein's money. He 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 gave him nine million. Uh, Harvard refused to return the money because they're Harvard, you know. Mm, mm, mm. But he's on the record as saying this, and this is an interesting quote in light of who Epstein really is. Epstein has changed my life because of him. I feel I can do anything. Whoa. Okay. Uh, Anything, anything like anything in your work or anything against the law, <laughs> like anything like, in the bedroom, anything, anything in the bedroom, anything on the on the plane. I mean, what are we talking about here? So he's written books on evolution, evolutionary game theory. Uh, he's written about cancer. He's written about viruses, infectious diseases and the evolutionary evolution of language as well. And in his book, Virus Dynamics, Mathematical Principles of Immunology and Virology, he writes about developing effective therapies and vaccines in what they call theoretical immunology. Sounds like fake Im immunology to me. And he studied how viruses interact in various circumstances and how viruses spread through the populations. So he's 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 game theorying virus spreads and Epstein wanted in on that. So I don't know what the I don't I mean, I don't think you and I have really even talked about this last, you know, the last year and the virus situation. I mean, I think to, it's safe to say that there is advanced fuckery happening on the virus situation, <laughs> to put it mildly. Now, does that does that mean it's engineered? Does it mean it was allowed to happen? 
I don't know, we could debate that, but, but the problem is um, that, and we'll get to this in a second, is where Epstein is the common denominator between Martin Nowak, who's studying how viruses spread through populations, and Isabel Maxwell, who is working for the World Economic Forum, who role-played a virus spreading throughout populations. So there's some connections here. So anyway, um, he he's... He's it. So these are the topics that that Martin Nowak is in, interested in. And like I said, once again, not necessarily anything nefarious. Just it's fascinating to me that Epstein was interested in these things. So it is things like kin selection. This is an evolutionary strategy that favors reproductive success of an organism's relatives, even at a cost to the organism's own survival and reproduction. They use bees as an example. The survivability of the herd, even if you have to sacrifice a couple people to, to keep the herd going. He's interested in genetic instability, uh, genetic redundancy, talking about gene mutations. Uh, this plays in when you talk about the Moderna vaccine that is not a vaccine at all. It's gene therapy. They're a gene therapy company. They've never made a vaccine, but it it makes me think of gene therapy and gene modification. So he's into that. He's into viruses, specifically HIV and AIDS, which also is a uh, connection to Fauci, where Fauci was involved in HIV and AIDS, and also the HIV spike protein that was involved that people have analyzed and, and found in this coronavirus in, in some of the the coronaviruses that are out there. So he's interested in evolutionary game theory, which is. Uh, uh, it's the evolution of population through Darwinism. Darwinism is sort of best described. I know there's, there's, you know, only the strong will survive, but really more what it is, is only those, those that are able to adapt are able to survive. So it's not necessarily being strong, it's being adaptable. And he's also interested in a thing called evolutionary graph theory, which is the evolutionary evolution of a population and um, and also concepts like prisoner's dilemma as that I'm sure you you know about. So he's he's into the psychology of decision making. He's into how viruses spread through populations, and he is into how that impacts uh, the society once you run uh, certain scenarios through that. That's the game theory component of this. So he's he's so what happened with Harvard is that he's been barred from starting new research or advising students for two years, but he's still teaching. So, um, and he's going to be allowed to continue teaching. So they, they shut his program for em evolutionary dynamics down, but he is still available. He's still there through Harvard and, um, and, and also, you know, Harvard kept the money. <laughs> so, so the, the, like, oh no, we don't want anything to do with Jeffrey Epstein. Will you give the money back? No, we're, we're, not, we're not that committed to it. We, we still want to keep the money. So so they've done that. Now, this was what leads me into uh, the role of Isabel Maxwell. Now, we, we've talked about that before. She is, um, you know, actually both of the Maxwell sisters. Christine Maxwell is running a company called Chiliad, which is a data mining uh, company that works with the FBI's counterterrorism unit. We've talked about that. And then the twin sister, Christine's twin sister, Isabel Maxwell, is at the World Economic Forum in, in the technology division. She is, the, she is uh, in charge of brain implants, AI, and mind control. So if you think about this from Epstein's point of view, and he, he described himself as a collector of people, 
why would you be collecting Martin Nowak? Well, he's he's a he's a fan of understanding how viruses spread. He's a he's interested in evolutionary biology. I I suspect that Epstein had plans for him with the New Mexico residents and that breeding program that he was running through that, that I don't know that for, for certain, let me just be clear, but, but, but th my assumption is that he was more in line with that than, you know, the blackmail component. I don't, I don't know why you'd blackmail Martin Nowak. Maybe you do, but, but, but anyway, but this, this concern of mine really is with the world economic forum and, and the relationship between the Maxwell's and, and that, and, and the world economic forum, of course, was part of, uh, three groups, Johns Hopkins Medical Center and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that ran event 201 in late October of 2019, which simulated the outbreak of a coronavirus across the world, how it would spread, where it would come from, what it would, what the impact would be, why they would shut everything down. It was a step-by-step -step playbook running a scenario that just happened to play out exactly the way the scenario was run six months earlier. So there's you know, it's 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 quite obvious that there's some advanced knowledge here of of what was going to happen. Either that, or it's just the luckiest guess. But how many of these lucky guesses do you get before you string together coincidence theories into conspiracy theories? And this is this is evident. I mean, the Evento One is not hidden; it's not secret. They filmed it. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like oh that doesn't exist. No, you can go watch it. You can go watch the video. So so they guessed according to them, six months in advance about something that would wind up happening almost exactly the way they they role played it. And somebody that has deep knowledge and a vested interest in making this come to fruition is Isabel Maxwell. So so it's just a very, you know, a very devious um, agenda that's happening here. And you wonder about what Jeffrey Epstein was doing with with collecting these people and putting them together. What was the plan? And and had he escaped his fate in that prison, where would he be after 2020 with all of this? And what would his role be with this? And what would be happening in New Mexico? And maybe we'll never know. But but to have a, a collection of artificial intelligence guys and evolutionary biology people running game theory experiments to see what happens to populations when you introduce things like viruses, it makes me think that he was in line with the WEF on setting some of this stuff up. Wow, absolutely mind-blowing, as usual, Charlie. So let's just go back and look at how Epstein could have possibly been applying this to the real world then. Yeah. In the Maria Farmer interview, she talked about how they considered themselves the people who were running the trafficking as a superior class, a superior race to the girls who were getting groomed and trafficked. So is this an extension of Third Reich supreme race ideology with modern-day science taking it to the next level and was Epstein when he wanted Virginia to sign those papers to get pregnant and sign over his baby, the baby that he wanted to have with her. Do you think that was part of this experiment? Well, it's, it, it seems reasonable to make that connection um, because he's see, see the, the you meant you asked if it was th third Reich type thinking. 
this is what I think Jim Mars would describe as the Fourth Reich. And if you look at the history of Klaus Schwab and his father's role as a Swiss industrialist uh, working with the Nazis after or during World War II, and then Klaus Schwab, uh, be, you know, becoming involved with it you know, launching the World Economic Forum years later, it has Nazi-like fingerprints all over it. They're, they have some of the same uh, ideas for the way they see the world. And, I, you know, breaking news, it's not good for us. And, and, and so that mentality of thinning the herd or controlling populations and uh, bringing everybody under some sort of technocratic control. This is a dream that the Nazis had, but could never fulfill because the tech, because the war was, was coming to an end and they, the technology wasn't there to support it. But these days uh, you can take over the world it, from a technological standpoint uh, and the world economic forum is hell bent on doing that. Of course, the sales pitch is something more along the lines of like green communism or something, but, but it's never going to be anything close to what the sales pitch is. I mean, we see, we know how, how that goes. So, so what they're saying is, you know, you'll own nothing and like it. Well, that doesn't sound very appealing to many people. So they ditched that. They, they, they stuck with build back better, but building back better implies that you have to build it back, which implies that it, is destroyed. It had been destroyed. So when when you see the World Economic Forum role playing things like this well in advance of of what we what we got in 2020, and then you see 2020 just just you know everything getting destroyed, and then the sales pitch comes in towards the end of the year with Joe Biden during his campaign talking about well we're going to build back better, and you go where have I heard that before? Oh yeah, that's the tagline for the World Economic Forum. So they had to destroy the current system, the current paradigm in order and off in order to offer you to build it back better or else nobody would be interested in, in, in going along with this because you can't sell the, the future paradigm when the current paradigm is working for you. 2019, the sales pitch for the World Economic Forum, no good. 2020, after months of lockdowns and everything's been destroyed, you're like, oh, let me hear more about this uh, Green New Deal or let me hear more about this fourth industrial revolution. It's gotta be better than what we have now. Well, they're the ones that destroyed what we have now. You know, they're the ones that were we're role playing this, and 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 so when you have these connections, and and you talked about the the you know Epstein and his group seeing them as superior beings to everybody else, I'm not surprised in the slightest. Of course, that guy thinks that he's superior to everybody else. In fact, really, why wouldn't you think you were a little bit superior to other people if you got busted for sex trafficking and and did the easiest 13 months anybody's ever done in jail and then had it just disappear and you went back to your old tricks. I mean, frankly, I would be feeling a little bit above people myself after something like that. So it it's a, it's a sick mentality. It's spreading of course. And, 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 and if we call it out for what it is, then you, then a lot of times uh, the people go, well, you're just being anti-Semitic and attacking Epstein and his group for their being Jewish. It's like, we never mentioned that once. You know, it's just, there's always some excuse for, oh, you're attacking these people because of something else. No, no, no. We're examining who they are and what they're talking about and attacking them based on that. You know, this is just, I have a problem with Klaus Schwab saying you'll, you'll own nothing and you'll never be happier. That's not his role to say how society will be transferred or Bill Gates. So, um, and of course, 
we did we you know we haven't even touched on the fact that Bill Gates has a a deep relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, and I think that that plays into uh, it's been my speculation, and, and and to be clear, full speculation on my on my part um, that Bill Gates probably purchased the control files from Epstein. I mean, if you've got a hundred billion dollars and you're friends with a guy that's a blackmailer and you're about to launch this massive operation in 2020, where you're going to need full compliance from the mainstream media and a bunch of politicians, and you can write a $50 million check or a wire transfer from your Cayman account to Epstein's Cayman. Why wouldn't you pick up a, a copy of this stuff? So now, to be clear, once again, pure speculation on my part, but but I feel like that's the sort of mentality you have to sort of get into the mind of these guys and what they would be doing. And if you were Gates trying to set this op operation up, which he knew well in advance, he negotiated a contract tracing deal with the U.S. government in uh, the spring of 2019 for $100 billion. That's a that's a hell of a guess. Once again, a year in advance that you're going to need a contact tracing uh, situation for the, for the government. So he had advanced knowledge because this was not organic. It was made to happen. And I think that his relationship with Epstein will at some point become front page news. Uh, it has been a little bit here in the US, but there's the media is still under the control of, of the Gates Foundation. So, so you're never going to get a real honest story. And if you start talking about it on social media, you'll go away pretty quick as you, as you have heard. But, um, it's a it's a cast of characters that we're now starting to see. It's like a Venn diagram with Jeffrey Epstein. He's, there's a lot of overlap between some of the people that he's got, the politicians and the scientists, and then the media folks, and 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 where they overlap. Where some of them overlap is has to do with Event Two Hundred One. You just made me have a, have a thought there about the money that Black gave to Epstein over 150 million. Yeah. Do you, do you think Black could have bought that and is black with Gates? Could Gates have acquired that through Black? Uh, anything is possible. Leon Black is is obviously, you know, has has questionable ties, and anybody that gets to you know to that level um, and has ties to uh, the Jewish mafia and and places like that, which would make him, which would put him in direct connection with Wexner. Uh, those guys are those guys are are they're smart. I mean, they're evil, of course, but they're thinking a couple steps ahead. Now, I, I mean, once again, Leon Black has all the money in the world. So could he have uh, bought a control file? Absolutely. I, I would think that that would be, uh, I, I, but again, it's speculation on my part. But when you've got all of the money and you've bought everything that has a price tag on it and you're planning to shape society in a way that is contrary to the current direction of society, you're going to need a backup plan in case things go wrong and maybe a control file on the media and politicians and, and other scientists or whatever works as a very nice backup plan. We can do this the easy way, meaning the Gates foundation gives a bunch of money to the media and has them tell the, the same story the same way, or we can do this the hard way. If you get off track, just remember, we've got this on you. How did you get that? Don't worry about it. We've got it. You know, that sort of thing. And so you, 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 would, you would expect somebody as, as smart as, uh, and as thorough and as, as prepared as Bill Gates to have a backup plan. And, and to me, I think Jeffrey Epstein could have been part of his backup plan. We've only got two minutes left, Charlie. So what are you doing at your blog these days? 
what else are you doing online and where can people support you if you've not been kicked sure. off the various platforms you can you can go to my website the octopus of global um i think ash has a link tree for that i opened up a cool merchandise store that has crazy shirts if you want to trigger people, you know, shirts, stickers, uh, trigger people at your work with a coffee mug that says Building 7, have at it, man. You can get to it from, from there. It, it's, and, and on top of all that, really high quality. I, I was a bit surprised. You know, those print-on-demand stores, some of them are kind of wonky. But but this one, I ordered my merchandise in advance so I could try it out. It's super comfortable. It fits well. It's good. It doesn't fall apart when you wash it twice. So um, that's what I've been doing. Of course, my my podcast, Macro Aggressions, is available uh, wherever podcasts are served in audio format, as well as on David Icke's video platform, Iconic, and on Rockfin and Library and YouTube. And speaking of Library, I'm, I'm interviewing tomorrow uh, Jeremy Kaufman, the CEO of Library slash Odyssey, who has just entered into a nice fight with the SEC over their cryptocurrency component. So that'll be a great conversation. So people can check me out there. Please support Charlie's work. If you're watching this, links will be below this video in the description box. And if you go back a year or two and look at the Partners in Evil series that we've done, you can see the trajectory of all of this knowledge and how yeah. this has unfolded and the depth from the very beginning that Charlie has kindly shared with us. So huge thank you for coming on and hope to see you again soon, Charlie. Of course. Thank you, Sean. Thanks to everybody in at Patreon for watching this and, and supporting our work. We really appreciate it. it. It's because of you that we're able to do what we're doing. So thanks very much, everybody. Take care, man. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. Just honestly, the night just goes so fast for me. Cause Ash just lines up the best guests ever. Just with more mind-boggling information, more fascinating information, harrowing stories that just make us want to do stuff. Honestly, we've got to get these women in front of the government and make changes to the laws starting in this country and these laws have got to be changed worldwide you can't have the most evil person ever who the judge wants to give a life sentence to then have his hands tied and he's out after three years it is absolutely sickening interviewing that woman maya honestly i felt like all my blood left my body at one point and i just my i completely froze it was so disgusting what he did he should never be out that guy breeding a child just to do those things to it to her oh, honestly right i'm gonna get the get the next guests in now so linda and greg are gonna come in let me just find them we're going over to the nygaard case it does make me mad that these predators get slaps on the wrist. And the more, more stories I hear, like Myers, just the madder I'm getting. So I'm going to hook her up with John Wedger. We're going to take the advice of the other guest and see what we need to do to get sentences for predators changed. Right, I'm just scrolling through this. Next page. Okay. I have found Greg. And I have found Linda. 
Invite Greg. Invite Linda. Invite Linda. Thank you for supporting Charlie. He's always brilliant to speak to. I'd have him on every week. People like him, Ryan Dawson, if they had the time. <laughs> Hello, Greg and Linda. Hi. Hey, nice to see you. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, where in the world are you? I'm in Sweden. I yeah. live in Stockholm, yeah. So are you guys having a lockdown now or is it eased? Yeah. Oh, well, Sweden has been a bit, bit different. They don't believe in the corona thing. Everybody's just running around wildly. So. <laughs> <laughs> and has that caused you guys to have more or less cases? Uh, more. Far more. more than the other countries in uh, Scandinavia. Really? Yes. Yeah, it's been really bad here. Wow. While we are waiting for Greg, do you just want to tell the audience a bit about yourself and what your mission is? My mission tonight's here, or actually it's night here. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a classical violinist. Uh, I'm from Finland. And uh, I've uh, played since I was eight years, uh, five years old, traveled the world since I was eight. And um, I've lived in LA, I've lived in London, and now I've lived for several years in Sweden. And tonight I'm going to be here uh, talking about um, when I got sued by Peter Nygaard. Uh, and in the beginning it was $10 million, in the end it was $40 million. So uh, he, that, that whole case totally ruined everything in my life. And uh, I had to, yeah, I will tell you later <laughs> the whole thing. So while we're waiting for Greg then, do, do you ever play Vivaldi's Four Seasons? Oh yes, I'm so sick of it. Yes, I've done it many, many times. Do you like it? I watched it in Italy. I think it was Venice. Doesn't he have a house there that he lived at once? And um, oh yeah, I, I I started to listen to it a long time ago on the radio, but but to see it performed, I had all the goosebumps and everything. I love I love the Four Seasons. Yes, yeah, I didn't mean to say anything bad. It's just that you know, for a violinist, you usually start with that when you're pretty young. So yeah. and then you're like, it doesn't sound that nice when you're very young. It's like. Ee, ee. <laughs> <laughs> So in the end, when you do it for real, when you're older, it's quite boring. <laughs> right. Okay. Greg is here. Hi there. Thanks for joining Hi. us. Are you in one of the states? Uh, I am in Connecticut. So my office is in New York. I'm in Connecticut now at my house. And are you guys going through a lockdown or is it easing where you're at? It's easing up a little bit here in Connecticut and New York is easing up slightly, but it's still uh, still going full bore. Pretty scary. So what got you involved with the Nygaard case? We got brought in about, it's now about three years ago. We were brought in, we heard from a Florida lawyer who said that they had an unbelievable case going on and they needed somebody to come in that had dedication, expertise, and the resources to deal with a, a large um, scale international uh, sex trafficking case with a very wealthy fashion mogul. And so we went down to the Bahamas and in a two day stretch, we met with about 20 different, actually probably more than 20 people, including at least 12 victims. And it was really harrowing. It was humbling. And I realized we have to do this case. We have to bring this truth and uh, 
these facts forward because people like Linda were shut down in their attempts to tell the truth. And we knew that if we had a cogent strategy and the right people, we could absolutely end this reign of terror and bring the light of truth to it. And we've done that. So Linda, you met my God. How did that come about? Um, it was January 97. Uh, I had become like a famous figure or whatever in Finland and uh, magazines were um, approaching me, trying me to do covers for them. And then I got this one offer that was different from the others. And it was um, a Finnish lawyer, um, a journalist uh, called uh, Rita Tainola. And she was working for a magazine called Seura. And she asked me if I wanted to go to the Oscars um, in LA. Uh, and uh, well, I thought I couldn't because I was studying at the Sibelius Academy. I was working in, in the opera, but then my parents are actors. So I grew up in a theater and my parents said, well, if you get the chance to go to the Oscars, you, you should go. Uh, so I even bought a, a small digital video camera with me uh, had it all the time with me for many, many years after that. Uh, and I started filming uh, already on the airplane on the way there. Uh, and I luckily, well, uh, luckily, whatever, but I, I had a man with me going there. Uh, and he was uh, like a stand in for my real manager who was uh, ill. Uh, and this, well, we when we got to uh, LA to the airport, uh, I was going to go to the Oscars and I was going to do this thing for the magazine. Uh, but when we got there, there was a car waiting for us. And they said that they would take us to a Finnish man's house. And it was Rita's friend. Uh, I thought it was a bit odd because I'm very, even if I'm a like, public person, but I'm very private <laughs> in my own life. And I felt like I wanted to go to a hotel. I didn't understand the thing. So we were taken to taken anyway to Marina del Rey, uh, to and and the man, he said, well, his name was Peter Nygaard. I had never heard his name uh, before uh, in my life, so I didn't know who he was. And we came there. I'm filming everything with my camera. We are walking, and we were like, "Whoa, we're on the beach, this big house!" and um, and then I, we went in, I got my room. It was upstairs on the second floor on the left. Uh, well, it was a strange house. It was more like um, being on holiday somewhere. Uh, and, and then um, the man, Ville, who was there with me, he didn't get a bedroom in that building. He was taken to the other side, on the other side of the street to like a low building. Um, I don't know what it's called in English, but like a low white building. And he he was staying there. And I was in this house, uh, in Nygaard's house. And Nygaard, he arranged uh, a party for me. He invited, I think it was Robert De Niro. I played the violin for people. He invited um, people that he said were important uh, from the industry of TV um, or music. Uh, and actually it's it's a bit scary because i have signed the papers with him later saying that i cannot talk about him so i'm scared all of the time it's still you know that was in the end when i signed it was 2001 and now i'm sitting here thinking what can i say what can't i say 
Um, but I'll say as much as I <laughs> think I can. Thank you. Um, and then um, the night when we were actually about to go to the Oscars, we were in the limo and there had been like one girl or one woman in the house already um, every, uh, all the time taking care of me. Uh, she was there too. And then there was one girl that they said was um, uh, his girlfriend, Eha from Estonia. And then there were suddenly four more women came there. And we were all in this like in a limo scene, limo, and we were taken to this party. And when we arrived, I realized it was not the Oscars. I was taken to Beverly Hills Hotel and it was night of hundred stars. Uh, and that party was a party that Nygaard, well, they said that it was his party every year when it was the Oscars. Um, so I saw, well, we were standing there and Nygaard was standing next to me, holding, holding me like, it seemed like I felt like we were. It felt like I was a. We were a couple, even if um, it was odd. And I had to stand there like smiling. But all this is on camera <laughs> because Villa was there also, so he has been filming this at the same time. Everything what happened, and yeah, there were so many odd things. Um, nothing was what I thought when I went there. And then there was something in the house some things and that happened and I talked about it later um, and then I got sued oh, I don't know how much I can say but anyway when I when I went back um, to Finland um, there was no article like uh, the Finnish Linda got to the Oscars the article was just Linda got this fabulous big um, contract in America because the, ni um, the night when he had the party at home for me, when we got there, um, when Robert De Niro was there, then there was one guy standing by the window and Nygaard told me that man over there, he's the most powerful and the best manager in LA. Uh, you should, I, I, I want to introduce you to him. So we went there to that guy and somehow later, because there were so many people anyway, there were some actors and people at that party that when that guy started, um, he kept in touch with me when I went back to Finland and he said, you should definitely come over. You have to come here. And Nygaard had introduced me to these whatever uh, actor stars that night at the night of 100 stars. I was in a relationship in Finland uh, where my um, boyfriend at the time, or fiance, he was, uh, um, there was, uh, he was abusive. And uh, he even, um, he broke my finger and stuff like that. So I just wanted out of that relationship. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this guy is saying to me, hey, why do you stay in Finland? You play the violin, you don't have, it's not a language problem you can play this, this is an international language, come over. So I didn't show it, the, this contract to anyone. I just signed and I signed an agreement, um, a contract with a management company called Chaos Group, <laughs> bad name already. But anyway, and mm. in that contract, it said that they would collect 
all the monies for all my work and i and they would then pay me later uh, my 80 percent well anyway um now i have i found out actually i heard about it earlier um when there was I had to sue my manager, but this is so confusing because it's very complicated, the whole thing. But Nygaard was part of the company. He owned part of it. And I had no clue because when I left the house, I had nothing to do with Nygaard, nothing. When, and, and I moved to America. I signed with the management company for three or four weeks after this trip because I wanted away from Finland. And I thought, hey, I can work in America too. And suddenly I had signed with a company that was partly um, owned by Nygaard and I didn't know it. So then for a year, this company, I did, for example, I did the cover for Playboy and it's a lot of money because it was a celebrity deal. It was not a Playmate thing. And I was on a TV series called Fame LA and I got my advance money for my record deal was a lot of money at the time uh, from these big companies. All that money went to their account. And then I sued them one year later. And when I sued them, suddenly I got sued uh, by Nygaard. So, um, but he sued me for things that I had talked about something in the house. It's extremely complicated. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I think we can read between the lines of what you're saying there. So, Greg, these women then, a man like Nygaard, who's got these vast resources and he's cal calculating, running rings around people, how can they compete against that? How can they get what they deserve? I mean, not just from back then, but what's going forward now, getting justice from this guy, because he's pulling all kinds of legal tricks from what I've heard from my other guests who've come on and talked about Nygaard. Well, in, in the past, to answer your question, Sean, is they had no chance. There was no opportunity, no viable means, no practical means to actually tell the truth about Nygaard. Nygaard ran what I would call a predator pyramid scheme, and it was built over decades internationally where he would bring people in. They would then bring people in, and the whole goal was to feed the predator at the top. He used every type of financial, reputational, and uh, violent types of control where he would keep people in line. Then he would abuse the legal system, and that's what he did to Linda because he he would tell people, I don't know why anybody bothers to try to sue me. I will just outgrind them. I will outspend them and I will destroy them. And he was certainly talking about Linda and others. And so in the past, nobody could do it. They went to the police. They went to other people and it always got shut down. Nygaard owned the police. He owned the government officials and he owned the press. So he worked very hard to facilitate a relationship with the press. And Linda already talked about somebody we know he was making payments to other people in the press. He was paying law enforcement. He was paying politicians. He was paying women. He was paying men as accomplices. So he had a very elaborate ring. What he did is he knew how to leverage and exploit social power dynamics. 
he can put you in an uncomfortable situation where he has complete control. For example, at that party with Linda or moving somebody to a different location, putting them in his house, giving them a job and saying, you can only work here. You can't work anywhere else. Threatening to have them deported, keeping them completely under his thumb. So he used every type of psychological, financial, reputational form of control to, to leverage this system. Now, however, we have the criminal component with the U.S. Department of Justice. We have our case and we have now the press telling the truth. But most importantly, what we have done is that we now have a lot of his co-conspirators that are now talking to us and telling us the truth. So his friends have disappeared and we know exactly what's going on. We know what he's doing right now in terms of legal dirty tricks. We know exactly what he's doing because the people he thinks are close to him are actually talking to us. So it's quite it's quite remarkable that I know what Peter Nygaard's doing on a daily basis. How many survivors are you working with and what kind of stories are you hearing from them? I now represent about 125 women. Wow. I represent two of Nygaard's sons and I hear very similar stories of exploiting power dynamics, using intimidation, using other tactics to get what he wanted and then most importantly for him is to intimidate those people and suppress them into absolute fearful silence. So my clients are afraid and they have remained quiet because they thought their lives were in danger and they may well have been because Peter Nygaard did employ very, very violent tactics. And we know that for a fact. So you've touched on a lot of it, but what other factors do you think enabled him to get away with this so long? It's a, it's a really good question. And it's a tough question because there are so many things. One is his personality. So he has a, he developed within himself and around others, a cult of personality. He was, is a narcissist. He is incredibly abusive and domineering and manipulative. He can make you feel the highest and then the lowest. He would pull you into a feeling of dependency. You had to have him. He made you feel that way. He would lavish people with nice things and then really, really punish them if they didn't do exactly what he wanted. He also understood how to test limits. So he'd push somebody just a little bit. If they did that, push them a little bit more, then a little more. And once he had them in, now they're complicit and he could ensure their silence. And he did that in this case by saying, the Department of Justice indictment talks about it, saying, if I go down, you're going down with me. So he pulled people into his web through his power and social dynamics, his manipulation, his narcissism, and his money. Then he suppressed them and intimidated them into silence, either by money, by bribing law enforcement, by um, suing them, and then by saying, you're complicit, therefore, we're in this together, you better be quiet. Now, the reality is a lot of them have come to us now, but that's how he got away with it for so long. And look what happened to Linda. She's a very tragic cautionary tale as to what would happen if you dared to try to go against Nygaard. So he employed the press, he employed expensive attorneys, and he tried to destroy Linda, and he's proud of it. That's exactly what he does, and he did it to countless people. So, Linda, he put you in a $40 million defamation lawsuit. How did you feel at that time psychologically, and how much has that changed since his arrest? I, I don't know what I can, you know, how much I can say because I'm I'm not allowed to say certain things about him. But I um 
I had to sign this confidentiality agreement and I had to make an apology to for him to end the thing because I got um, bulimic. I, my mother who had had problems before, she got ill again when they started. My parents were totally destroyed because we didn't know. We The thing I knew from when I lived in, in LA, I had lived with big stars, had hold, ho, uh, heard all these stories that the person who's got the most money will always win in court. And suddenly I have like a billionaire you know, who sued me. And I, I first saw this like $10 million and then it was more. And I knew that if I lose, I'm never going to be able to pay. So three times I almost managed to end my life. Mm. And I was... Uh, and th the bad thing was that at the same time, my reputation in my home country, even if Finland is such a small country in the world, but it's so important, it's my home country. And there were like lies about me and horrible articles and, and about Peter Nygaard, there were all the time during this period of time, these fantastic, um, uh, articles in one paper called Ilta Sanomat and they were all written by Rita Tainola, the woman who took me there. Um, so people in Finland actually started thinking that I had been lying and it was everything. My, I, I thought my career is over. Everything was just going downhill. I had absolutely no money uh, after that. I had to stop the thing. So I had to I had to do this, the thing with him, uh, because it took two years. And before that, I had been fighting with the manager, management company for a year in court in L.A. Um, um, so, yeah, I had to buy one page, a full page in Ilta Sanomat, like I would have bought a commercial. <laughs> and there was a letter with this when I'm saying that he's fantastic and how, how sorry I am. And then I had to give an interview to Rita Tainola. And she's now saying to the Finnish um, news channel, MTV3, when they uh, interviewed her, they are saying that, she's saying there, that she had nothing to do with that. Nothing. But I have the tape. It's here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and the good thing is I have filmed everything. I have saved, I'm crazy, but I have saved since I was a child. I've saved everything. And I have all the faxes, because it was fax at the time in the 90s. I have all the letters. I have, I have everything at home. And I have all the articles. I have all the lies that were written about me. And I'm writing a book now about my life. And there's going to be a documentary on this, um, the video material, because I have hundreds of hours. Good yep. for you. So seeing his arrest then in the news, I assume, how did that make you feel? Um, well, what I have to say now is that I cannot say if he's guilty. <laughs> uh, I, we don't know. He's, he's not. It's, it, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what I can say about him. But of course, I'm very happy that I have been able to to talk about it anyway, and also that 
I get so much feedback from women and from people in Finland now. And they are all saying, oh my God, we actually, the bad thing is that they are saying, we knew you were right or whatever they are saying, but why didn't anyone else speak up? This was 98, this article. And no one has said anything. And now they are all saying, but on the, on the other hand, many people are sincere and they really, really mean it that, oh my God, you went through hell for more than 20 years. And they are saying now the truth is coming out and all that stuff. Yeah, but I'm, I'm hoping that I could get a court order freeing me from this conf uh, confidentiality part. I don't know if that's possible. Greg, is that possible? <laughs> well, I, I can I can answer this: that generally speaking, NDAs are not effective against criminal conduct. But uh, I can't provide that legal advice now. I'd have to look at things more carefully. I don't want to run you in any issues, but I can tell you that in a lot of cases like this, including this case, people are just speaking up because Peter Nygaard's in jail. He's never getting out of jail. He will remain the rest of his life in jail. So. Um, I think there's absolutely nothing to fear from him. Nothing. And congratulations on the book and everything else. I think that will be cathartic for you. Thank you. So, Greg, does Nygaard have vast resources salted away so he can maintain his legal team and defend himself to the best of, you know, the standards that he's had in the past? Or are his resources getting depleted and his ability to do things like what he did to Linda is getting significantly reduced. The answer is paradoxically yes to both. Let me explain. He has been diverting assets and hiding assets for a very long time. We know that for a fact. Those assets are going to be moved offshore, and he has co-conspirators as of now still trying to do that for him. So on the first part of your question, yes, he does have a lot of assets. He's hiding them. The second part of your answer is they may not be readily accessible to him right now, such that he's able to avail himself of them now, but they are being depleted obviously because he's throwing everything at trying to make sure the survivors get nothing, his creditors get nothing, and that he and his closest confederates do get it. So we know we know what's going on, we know who's doing it, and uh, we're gonna track them down. And they know who they are and they know that we're coming for them. So, the people that are involved absolutely know that we're knocking on their door. They know we're going to be serving subpoenas. We're going to be suing them. So they know we're coming. So if you're a billionaire and you see trouble on the horizon, how easy is it to move that money around and get it so that people, uh, it's hard for people to trace and seize? Uh, that, that was a two-part question. The first part of your uh, question, I would say it's incredibly easy. You find a corrupt banker in a third world country, which is what he did, it's very, or actually not even a third world country, anywhere, people will do things for money. And so it is It is really, really easy to move that money around. Now, if you get somebody good like we have, you can trace it. You can follow the money. You can see when Nygaard has people trying to retitle assets from his name into their names. I mean, that's pretty clear. You can see the flow of money when you see an account in the Bahamas closed and then the account is open in Cyprus. So we know what's going on. We can find it. Forensic accountants, anti-money laundering experts can find this money, and we know what he's doing with it. 
He thinks he doesn't. He thinks we don't know, but we do. So that's a little surprise for Peter Nygaard. So extracting money then from a third world country and a dodgy banker, is that quite a process? And is there always a risk that the dodgy banker will just pocket that money and steal it themselves? I don't think they're going to steal it, but it will be a process to get it. Um, I mean, the banks to handle this type of volume of money, I don't think they're going to outright steal it, though <laughs> I can never promise anything. But I, I do think that there'll be a process to repatriate this money and get it back in the hands of the survivors. And most importantly, take it away from the, the people who have done wrong, because the way they were able to do this is money. If Peter Nygaard were a, um, a regular lawyer or doctor or accountant or, or musician, he couldn't have done this. He needed infrastructure. He needed vast amounts of money. He needed power and influence. You get that with money. And that's what he did. He was really, really adept at using money to corrupt and to silence people because he wouldn't play by the rules. He had absolutely no regard for rules. He used violence. He uses blackmail. Look what he did to Linda. So he's a narcissist who doesn't play by any set of rules. And he's extraordinarily dangerous. And all he cared about was meeting his own salacious needs. And he would do anything for that. Is he trying to corrupt the extradition process? And is the high publicity on this case perhaps preventing him from employing certain legal strategies? I, I think on the latter point, the answer is absolutely yes, that the publicity and I think the, the absolute abject shame that all these countries the US, the Bahamas, Canada, Finland, the UK, they should be absolutely mortified that they let this go on. Therefore, I think they're going to be hyper vigilant now and not have any more egg on their face because there is a lot of egg on their face because it was known. Everybody in Winnipeg knew. So this case, nobody did anything. So now I think they realize we have to clamp down. That's why his bail hearing was denied or his bail was denied for a second time. And I do not believe he has the ability to corrupt the extradition process. I do not. So we've seen the bravery of Maria Farmer and Virginia Roberts, just to name two of the survivors in the Epstein case, keeping the heat on the co-conspirators. They're very active on Twitter. It's, this is a credit to the bravery of Linda and the other survivors keeping the heat on Nygaard. Linda, ideally, what would you like to see happen to Nygaard from here if he gets extradited to the U.S. justice system? Well, I, I suppose I can say that now, after hearing Greg, <laughs> that if all this is true, and of course, I believe all these, everyone, I've, I've been there sort of also myself. So, um, well... He's, he has to be locked in for a very, very long time. And that's what I can say. But there's one important thing. I know we have to finish um, talking about Finnish. In Finland, there are also women that have been... I'm not the only one. We were many women who were taken to Nygaard, to LA, to Bahamas. Not only that, but there were parties in a hotel suite in Helsinki. And... Uh, girls and women were invited to these parties. I, they write to me. They write that they tell me who invited them. It was this specific journalist. 
but these women i say speak out you know talk no it's quiet everybody's so afraid i i don't understand they have to call greg greg your email phone number <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure they can find that but uh because, we, yeah. we, we really so sean what's really interesting about this case is it's hard to wrap one's head around the evil of Peter Nygaard. When I first heard about the case, I said, this, this can't be right. I must be missing something. I've never encountered such evil. I've seen movies, but in real life, and to see these 15-year-old girls that were victims, I thought, this can't be right. What's perhaps even more astonishing is the hundreds of people, seemingly normal people, that if you met them on the street, you'd say, he or she is pretty nice. And look at that. They've got a child. They've got this. And they are... They are co-conspirators who knowingly fed innocent young women with dreams and aspirations to Peter Nygaard so he could lie to them, defraud them, and rape them. And that's what, that is exactly what he did. And there were so many people around him that did it. Journalists, they were modeling agents, they were celebrities. I just cannot believe how many people would knowingly participate in that just to make a few dollars. They were opportunistic and they would let young women have their lives destroyed, their dreams taken away, just to curry favor with Peter Nygaard. It's shocking to me and it's very disappointing to me. And I wish more people would speak out because that's where the survivors have the platform. I'm no longer afraid. I have 124 people with me. Linda has many more Finnish women, but she's got 124 survivors with her now. And as a according to the Department of Justice, there are at least hundreds of victims. And I believe there are certainly thousands of victims. And that's deplorable that this has gone on for so long. And so many people continue to cover up for him because they're covering up for themselves. And that's disgusting. And we're going to have Greg's links below this video. So if there are any survivors out there, please contact Greg. So Greg, what other factors prevent survivors from coming forward? I imagine... If you had, you know, if it was decades ago and you've had a family and you've got kids, then you perhaps this is something you've buried and you wouldn't want your family to know, or you wouldn't want the media to be reporting that and, and bring potential shame upon you and your family. Uh, are, are these the, the things that go through the survivors' heads? Yes, it's a multifaceted approach for many of the survivors. A lot of it is the shame and the guilt, and they do not want to be judged and or identified as a quote victim. They wanna be who they are, which is an amazing strong person, not a rape survivor. Also, all, all you know, culturally we have not evolved enough into the fact that we should embrace, celebrate and elevate the people who have the courage to have lived through something that was no fault of their own and speak the truth. And so it's a sad statement about our culture that people would feel afraid to come forward. Another aspect is they have jobs. They may be CEOs of companies. They may have husbands. They may they have children, and they don't want to go through the trauma. It is so traumatic. They have taken this, this horrible pain, put it in a ball, and stuffed it away. And opening it up, every time they talk to us, it re-triggers, and they have a very difficult time. And often we, we, we always recommend therapy because it opens that wound. It's a scar and you reopen that and they're hurt and nobody wants to relive the hurt. You, you want to pretend it didn't happen. And that is what is so tough for 
people to get over it. Now, one of the things that happened here is when Peter Nygaard's paid PR team to lie about ridiculous conspiracy theories. I call them the flat earthers. I mean, it's such a ridiculous theory. And it's it's disgusting, really, because it denigrates the truth. It takes away from this epidemic, and it's really disappointing. But when you see them do these tactics, it is, it's alarming, it's shocking. And the fact that people will accept money from Peter Nygaard to repeat ridiculous lies, it, it is really stunning to me that people in any civilization would do that just to make a few dollars. We've just got a couple of minutes left, so I'll give the final question to Linda. When a survivor reaches out to you and they've had this thing buried inside them and perhaps haven't been able to talk to anybody about it before, how does that feel for that person to release this information and all the emotions surrounding that when they talk to you? Is it like they're removing something evil out of themselves and perhaps by finally telling someone psychologically, you know, it's, it, it helps them or perhaps r resurrecting the memories re could cause them to relive it. You know, what, what kind of reactions are you getting from speaking to survivors? It's exactly what you said. Uh, it's what they say. And first they don't want to say much. Uh, when they have got in touch with me, it's more like when all this came up and I, I, I did this one thing for the news channel in Finland and the first things they wrote to me were, it was just like, sort of like a hi. <laughs> uh, and I, um, I saw your thing on the news channel and then they start talking more and more about it. Um, they, and it, it's been quite hard for me because one of these women, the horrible things she told me, it's exactly where I was um, in the same rooms. Um, it's, it's not nice. But then, you know, then I try, then I try to, because they haven't signed anything, these women, they don't have anything like I have, this agreement. Um, I tell them, you know, that they have to talk to people who can help them. And then it's stop. Everything stops. So it's weird. It's very strange, the situation in, in Finland. Um, but, but um, and, and of course, you know, some of them also say that they, they tell a lot. And then they suddenly say, um, now I don't want to talk about this anymore because I have had it inside somewhere i have put it in the back of my head i didn't want to think about it yep. and now i've thought about it i can't handle it so i'm putting it back here again it's there wow but uh, yeah so for people watching this then including survivors what's the best way to get a hold of you guys Are you active on the social media platforms i am i, I, I personally am not but go ahead, Linda. I'm, I'm not. Sorry, sorry. But you are the one who can help. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you want to put up um, anything on my website, but uh, yeah, I don't do anything on social media really. I'm just I'm here as a resource to help people, a sounding board. And to answer your last question, Sean, I would add that the women that come forward are so happy that they are believed and not judged. That's all. That's all they want. 
They really just want to be acknowledged for their pain and their truth. They're not looking. I'm telling you right now, they are not looking for money. They are not. They want accountability. They want the truth. And they just want that to be exposed and everybody to know it. That's exactly. And I guarantee Linda will say it, too. That is what they want. Exactly. It's the truth. Yep. It's like when the Epstein survivors came out of the court and you saw that scene in the documentary where a judge had finally talked to them like they were human beings and they were just so happy that they were being believed and acknowledged and justice was in progress. So I understand what you're saying there. Huge thank you for coming on, guys. Over Representing over 100 survivors, that's a lot of work, Greg. It is. Um, wow. I, I, you know, that's, yeah, really commendable. So you're both you. extremely, extremely brave, and I wish you all the best with your mission. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. So, thank you. Thank you, guys. So all the links, whatever links, websites, uh, contact will be in the description box below the video. So please go and support them. So, you know, we've got a lot of dark content on this channel. The, the, the podcast like Mr. Fish, Crazy Mr. Fish, gay, black, armed, robber and drag. It's nice to break up the darkness with stuff like that. Then we had a guy, Peter Walsh, who's an author of numerous books. He's just written a massive book about the war on drugs. And he told us Curtis Warren's story, a famous Liverpudlian who had a massive cocaine ring. But he weaved into that as well all the lessons about the war on drugs, the futility of it, and completely tied in with our mission to end the war on drugs and get those resources to go after the predators. A lot of you guys are going to be absolutely blown away by Samantha Brown coming back on and doing two hours on the evil pimp of Birmingham, who was a Satanist. He branded all the girls. He sex trafficked with 666. He had satanic rituals. He said it, he was doing it for Satan and he brainwashed these girls with all kinds of horror stories. If you Google Evil Pimp of Birmingham, you could see him come up. And this guy is pure evil. The next guy, Michael Prendergast, was a bully vigilante. As a young person, kids beat the shit out of him. He wasn't afraid of them. He didn't really feel anything about it. His brain is wired in a really weird way where he's got ADHD times 10. Over a decade later, he sees one of the bullies. The guy got just the living daylights beat out of him and almost drowned in the men's toilets. He did this to 11 different bullies. He was known as Crazy Mike in Blackpool, and he was so... He had military training, been in the military. I think he was on steroids. He was weightlifting. Only a small guy with big blue eyes, but strong as hell. You would look at him and not think, right, this guy's a guy I'm scared of fighting, but whew, boy, he could fight. So bouncers and club owners would bring him in to clear out drug dealers and troublemakers because he just had no problem doing it. They brought him in a club and he cleared out two drug dealers, but they were part of Manchester gangland. They, five cars of them came back. And a normal person would not go out and confront those people, but this was Crazy Mike. 
him and one other guy ran out to confront them. Mike started knocking people out. One pulled out of machete, hacked his arm, and Mike showed me the scar on his arm. It's like this big. Didn't stop him. He's knocking these guys out left and right, taking weapons off them. It's like something out of a movie. One of the guys isn't knocked out. He's screaming, and Mike wants to stop the screaming. And he's got no time to think, you know, about how to stop the screaming, but his brain just tells him instinctively the way to stop the screaming is to bite his tongue off. He bites the guy's tongue off. The guy's bleeding to death, and they helicopter him to hospital. And this was five cars of people from one of Manchester's most serious gangs. They never came back. This is how crazy this guy was. But he's a lovely guy as well. He's got this gentle side. He came with his wife and his dog. And um, she's moving him to Spain to get away from all these triggers in Blackpool. And I hope he has a successful life. Then we had Richard Shellis, who's a guy from the UK. who ended up becoming a crystal meth cook for the Aryan Brotherhood in Texas. <laughs> this guy's stories. Talk about Walter White. Absolutely mental. We had Moazam Beg. He's done a lot on TV in the UK. And he was in Guantanamo Bay, Gitmo, where people were getting tortured to death. Yeah. He was a humanitarian. He went on missions to Bosnia, Afghanistan, set up schools. And he got rounded up in the aftermath of 9-11, as many did. And if you were innocent and you didn't confess to a crime, they kept torturing you in this place. And he's such a radiant guy with a positive smile and lovely energy. I think I did almost three hours with him. Maya, like I've told you about, the dad who kept the diary rating the molestations, absolute fucking sicko. This guy should not be out there as a free man. Oh, I, I cried three times during that interview. But the moment when I felt like all my blood had left my body and I, my entire body turned to ice because I'd been talking to her for three hours, <sighs> I had to put my jacket on, honestly. And we even said, I, we felt like, I felt like the evil presence of her dad had entered the room and just sucked like a vampire all of the heat from my body. If you watch this one, brace yourselves. It needs a disclaimer. She gets into not too much detail, but it's the emotional journey that she goes through. And you can just feel her pain. As she's getting to certain moments, I kind of knew what she was about to say. And I was getting upset before she even said those things. But she could be the absolute spearhead because it's personal stories. People have gone through it. If we can get a media campaign behind her and get the politicians to listen to this woman, people all over the world are going to be outraged that this guy is walking around. It's the true stories from the survivors that are going to get these laws changed. So as well as getting the laws changed to end the war on drugs, it is the true stories of people like Maya, people like Samantha Brown, these articulate women who are brave enough to go out there and say what happened to them that can get these laws changed and get sentences increased for people as evil as this, who even the judge said deserve life in prison, but his hands were tied. 
Why the fuck are judges' hands being tied when we know from this channel the devastation these predators cause? All the crime that comes about, the drug addiction, hundreds of victims per predator. It, it, it absolutely pisses me off that these, a judge could not give this guy the, a life sentence. And our final guest of the week was Kieran Proverbs, part two. Great guy out of Manchester. Was a UK crip in Manchester. Got involved in gun crime. Did some dirt. People tried to kill him. And he's come through it. And he's set up legitimate businesses. His YouTube is doing good. It's rising, but I think more people need to subscribe to him and get behind him. I can see a tension in his face. And I know he's going through things. And I think the love and support of this, the followers, the viewers, when you subscribe to people, when you just comment... I mean, I wake up, have a breakfast, and I read the comments that are coming in, and it's it's so uplifting. It it, it reaffirms the mission and makes you want to continue. And for people who've got lower subscribers than channels like this, it's so important to them when people subscribe and reach out and leave them comments and share their videos. And he, you know, if if you've got the time, I urge you to go over to Kieran Proverbs um, channel. Watch what we did with him. It, it, it's got a six figures, the video we did with him, part one. Wally Walnuts is talking about castration, yeah. So with Maya, we discussed what else we want to be changed under the law. And one was chemical castration as well as the longer sentences. It's the only way we can address this. Otherwise, predators are just going to get slaps on the wrist and continue to have hundreds of victims, which fill prisons eventually, I guess, and it keeps the private prisons in business. But we don't want we don't want that. It's not good for the society. Ash has just sent me a list of upcoming guests. I think we've got Ryan Dawson. Johan Harry will be the first guest on who has actually met Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Johan Harry is written, he started out talking about the royal family. He wrote this book, Chasing the Scream. Brilliant. Johan Harry is an absolute warrior at the forefront of waking people up about the futility of the war on drugs. Because in his book, Chasing the Scream, he has all of these stories running along together that interweave. And the two of them are, one's the story of Harry Anslinger, who Sheriff Joe Arpaio worked under in drugs enforcement and hero-worshipped big-time racist. And the other one is the story of the blues singer who was addicted to drugs, had a sad life. I can't remember her name now. Maybe someone could put it in the in the chat. Uh, but he hounded her to death, basically, Harry Anslinger. Johan spoke to people involved with the cartels, gangs in America. He's done absolutely fantastic work. His TED Talk has got multi-million views. So it's a real privilege to have him on. I've, I emailed him years ago about Sheriff Joe. And um, I know Johan um, worked with Russell Brand uh, back then as well. Then we've got Andrew Bustamante, ex-CIA. And I believe that Andrew, I think it was, that was on Valuetainment. Billy Holiday, that's it. The story of Billy Holiday. And it's getting turned into a movie which is going to wake even more people up. And Nick McKinley is going to be talking about human trafficking. So 
you know, it's been an absolutely brilliant night again. I've learned so much. There's so much going around in my head. Sorry, Andrew was on concrete. So it was probably Nick that was on Valuetainment. I love watching Valuetainment. Patrick, Brett David is great. There's so much going around in my head at all times because of the people I've interviewed. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. I'm trying to put together how we can affect these changes in the world. We've got a big platform now. You know, it's you guys raising awareness of these things, bringing them to my attention and to Ash's attention, and then enabling us to just get these messages out to the world to so many people. And once, so, you know, the Epstein case in particular, 400 plus videos, that has woke so many people up and continues to do so. It's great that it's always in the news. It's the best thing possible for our mission. So people can see that, yeah, all these people we idolized, it's all a facade. They are psychopaths. They are involved and behind some of the most heinous crimes in the world. So huge thank you to you guys then for keeping us informed about what's going on and enabling us to have such great guests. Because all these guests, yeah, Ash is booking them, but it's you guys that are suggesting them. And it seems it's the whole process is getting more refined and focused so that it is there's the, this jigsaw I'm trying to put in my head together. You know, like I asked the guy today, how do we get Maya in front of politicians so laws can be changed? And he said right there exactly how to do it. This is the information that we need because we don't know. The political process is a frustrating one and politicians have come to my talks and they've been they've had emotional reactions and they've promised the world and they've never got in touch after that. So it's coming together. Our mission statement has come together. That is solidified. What we need now is an action plan. And I know that Maya, Samantha Brown, John Wedger, I, I am convinced these guys can spearhead the thing. I just don't know yet how exactly this is going to unfold, but we are this close. We are this close to making actual progress and to getting these people in front of politicians and hopefully get laws changed. So keep sending the guest suggestions. Really appreciated. Huge thank you to all the people who have subscribed and continue to support the channel and the Patreons. Yeah, we're stuck at 666-777 right now. <laughs> it did jump like 200 last night, so I expect by the weekend we'll be over that. Huge thank you to the mods, Amy in Alabama, and um, everybody else that's you know part of the team. We are now at nine, so I am going to sign off. Yeah, I will be giving you updates on Pepsi Watson. His The woman he was arrested with has just sent me some footage, last footage he filmed before he was arrested, and we are going to be posting that onto the channel in the coming days. And because this content is not going to be going onto YouTube... I can let you guys know that, but keep it to yourselves, that because of my activism, I have received a summons 
to a police station that I'm going to have to go to. And it's not because of something I said, it's because of something that one of the guests said. So as we get more over the target and they try to shut it down, this is the beginning of the games that they play. What we heard today was that um, from the lawyer that was just on, they have all the resources in the world to shut us down. If it's the state, they have the taxpayer resources. If it's a predator billionaire, they have their own resources. But I'm very fortunate to have a really experienced lawyer right now that is handling this for me. So I don't expect that I will be not allowed to exit the police station on the day that this happens. I did ask him about live streaming it, and he said, don't aggravate the police like that. Keep it on the down low. That's why I'm only telling you guys on the Patreon this right now. And this is happening on, let's see. This is happening on the 13th of April. I'm going to be going in with the lawyer. So what they did to Jeanette Archer, let's just say it's a similar situation to that. But whereas Jeanette said those things that they went after her for, it was one of my podcast guests that went, that said those things that they're going after me for. And because I am the publisher, I am liable. I have done what they said, which I did not know was a violation of the law. This is why you may have noticed on the channel since I started the Epstein case, I have become particularly, um, I have to weigh my words very carefully. Uh, you know, people are asking, what did the guest say? I can't say what the guest said because it's illegal to say that. And I would now be committing an offense knowing that that was illegal. All I can say is it pertains to sexual abuse cases and naming victims of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and the laws around that. It's, it's, it's very complicated. Um, so the lawyers said, I've basically just got to go in there and accept responsibility for this. I will not be implicating anybody else by accepting responsibility for it. If I just go no comment and that's going to aggravate the whole situation. So we're just hoping that they're going to realize what the truth is, which is I didn't know that this law existed. I didn't know the podcast guest was going to say that the podcast guest was a person seasoned in journalism and you know i just rely on the expertise and the experience of my podcast guests when it comes to me making such interviews and then by telling that truth hopefully the situation won't be um taken to the next level so you know i've done videos on not talking to the police. My lawyer, I know people are concerned about what I just said. Alex Belfield said he he's trained. He knows how to talk to the police without implicating himself or anyone. I believe I've got a good level of knowledge now to be able to do that. And my lawyer is going to be sat right next to me. So any question that I feel is about to trip me up, 
I will be looking at my lawyer and ask, you know, basically asking him what to say. And if I, if I'm asked anything that comes along that, um, whereby I feel that I'm getting set up to say the wrong thing uh, at that point, you know, I, I would just say no comment to protect myself and, and just look at my lawyer and, and, and ask him what to say. But I think I've got a good degree of knowledge to get around this. And I'm hoping that this is just a one-off versus I'm now being completely targeted by the state in an Alex Belfield fashion. Only time will tell. And even if it does escalate, this mission is not going to stop. We're going to continue to have people on, but in a more guarded way, we're going to have to weigh um, the things not that not just I say that the guests say. Sometimes, perhaps you see me like tightening up a bit when guests say certain things. Years ago, I probably wouldn't have tightened up like that, but I was worried that it would come to what it's come to now. And the thing is, with big companies, they have legal departments, and they're told what they can and cannot say. I'm just one guy you know, with my team trying to make this little change in the world. I don't have these vast resources of these legal departments to advise me on what to say and what not to say and to look at videos and to edit things out. I'm just shooting from the hip, trying to get through this without getting in trouble, trying to get the mission out there. So that's where we're at with that. So come April 13th, I do fully expect, what day is that? That is a Tuesday. I do fully expect to be doing an Atwood Unleashed on Wednesday, April 14th. If I'm not, then you know it has gone completely against me. Um, but it's not exactly the crime of the century. I think Jeanette Archer wasn't in jail for very long. You know, I should probably get out of there quite fast. If... I am in jail, you know, I urge then people to spread the word and videos to be made and some kind of, you know, reaction to go around the internet. Yeah, Ash, <laughs> Snaps just said Ash could take over. This is it, you know, I've been trying to get Ash to co-host now for a bit. If I'm not here next Wednesday, it was meant to be Ash. Ash, you're going to have to step up to the plate, brother. <laughs> we cannot be dropping Atwood Unleashed from being weekly. It's got to keep going. We've got to keep momentum going, Ash. You've been telling me that. <laughs> Ash is just posting, I'm washing my hair next Wednesday. <laughs> At least you've got her. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> So, you know, my lawyer said, keep this on the down low, people. I'm just sharing this with you guys. You know, you're my trusted, most trusted followers. You've been donating money to keep the mission going. Please keep it on the down low. Unless you don't see me next Wednesday. If you don't see me next Wednesday, let everybody know. I would love it if YouTubers were speaking out on my behalf and lobbying and campaigning 
to remedy whatever injustice has been levied upon me. And it might not be such a bad thing. It might just raise even more awareness of the mission and give us even more backing from the public who are not yet aware of what we're doing and um, enhance things. So I, I'm prepared, you know, to spend a few days in if necessary. Gigi's asking, do you have to show up? Why not just send your lawyer? Yeah. If I don't show up for this, automatically then I can be arrested. They could come here, take all my equipment, like what we've seen with Alex Belfield, and start putting me through the motions. So our strategy is to go in and not aggravate the police. Just be polite. I have published this information. I wasn't aware that law existed. And just take it from there. All right, guys, I'm going to go and put some veggie sausages in and um, get on get on with what I need to get on with. Yes, the laws are crazy. Yeah. And I also have another situation with YouTube that's just arisen today. I won't get into too many details of that right now that I'm going to have to um, respond to right now. So yeah, we are we are back under threats, but we've got the strength, we've got the backing to get through this and keep the mission going. So huge thank you to everyone for joining us tonight. Thanks again for Ash for staying up till four in the morning in the Philippines. The team, the moderators, the Patreons, everybody out there. All right. Good night, everyone. Take care out there. Cheers from Guildford. And I'm going to end this broadcast. So see you next week, next Wednesday, hopefully. Bye-bye.